This is W T M. Watch this movie. What? <laughs> How you doing? Oh, good for you. Oh, wait. I drink it up. First, you gotta do the trouble shuffle. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. W G M. Watch this movie. Welcome back to a brand new episode of WTM Watch This Movie. I am Eric Mulder. Say hi to your mom for me. Joining me, as always, is Mr. Positivity, Wolfie T. You crazy if you think I'm going to walk up some dark alley with a loud orange hat on my head and a whistle. What's up? Call sign Wolfie T. Fresh off the revelation, the wonderful experience that was Top Gun Maverick. How do you feel? Sure, I feel there's nothing like going to see Top Gun in the Dolby Theater. And then driving home with a Hemi. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Brett. We are doing Out for Justice today. And to mark this special occasion, we have a martial arts film expert from the Midnight Movie Cowboys. We have John Grace. You're going to die here today. And that's a promise. Right. But after you. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Great to be here. Uh, do you want to say I don't consider myself an expert? I uh, always call myself a martial arts movie historian. Okay. Ex- expert sounds arrogant, like you've got all the answers. and Too humble. Well, I found out digging and digging that things change all the time. Like finding out Bruce Lee was hooked on <laughs> cocaine in his final year has changed a lot of so-called expertise. <laughs> It like that that turned everything on its head yeah it just takes a new book coming out right and then all of a sudden there's a new story in it and or a new perspective yeah the new book came out and didn't really change the perspective and uh but then <laughs> letters letters to his pal in um baker's though um stockton california uh, went up for auction and revealed he had a cocaine addiction and other mistresses <laughs> that no one had heard of before. So changed everything. And turns out he was probably selling cocaine in Hong Kong, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, that everything, the entire narrative was smashed. Don't sell me this Kung Fu Jesus nonsense anymore. I'm sick of it. So. <laughs> and like everybody's in denial of it too, boy. People didn't want to admit it was real. It's like, it's authentic. That's his signature. That's his handwriting. Come on. That's the way he writes, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, writes like a crazed beatnik hippie or whatever. So today's discussion is going to be Steven Seagal focused <laughs> without for justice from 1991. Is this his uh, third film? It's a um, starring vehicle. It was his fourth fourth. Okay. Y- yeah. That yeah. was above the law. Then there was no movie for like a year. Then there was Hard to Kill, which was a big hit. And then there was Mark for Death that was done for 20th Century Fox and sort of Warner Brothers. And he, I think he may have filmed this before Mark for Death. Okay. Or maybe right after, but I know it was shot. And then I think it was on the shelf for like a year because they were, they wanted to wait for the box office to cool off for Mark for Death, which was a hit too. And, um, and so we can blame out. Disney for that, uh, them not releasing Mark for Death on Blu ray then. Yeah. Yeah, because they uh, they don't care. They don't care about stuff like it's that. It's the only so. 20th Century Fox release that Seagal did, right? Yep, the only one. Only time he worked for him, I believe. 
Okay. And like once was enough, even though it made a lot of money. But <laughs> so, how about you? Uh, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about Steven Seagal and his background and going to Japan, starting the Aikido Dojo. Okay. The floor is yours. Okay. I'll uh, I'll try to recall what I can without looking anything up on Google or anything. Mm-hmm. And that his history is kind of murky anyway. I think he intentionally intentionally did that to throw people off, but. Uh, he grew up in Los Angeles. He, um, people think he's Italian or whatever. He's actually uh, like a Russian Jew. Um, he doesn't have any Italian blood in him. Yeah, his, his mother was Irish, right? And then his dad was Russian Jewish. Yeah, his dad was like Russian came, Jewish. And I think he worked from as a Russian teacher. Jewish. Yeah, yeah. His dad worked as a teacher and his, his mother was Irish. And um, he, he grew up, I think he was kind of like a high school you know, rock me, rock star wannabe, like played guitar and maybe he was in band or something in high school. And he claims he saw an Aikido demonstration and he wanted to learn Aikido. Um, however, his first karate or martial arts teacher in Los Angeles was uh, Fumio Demura, who I believe was the double for uh, Pat Morita in the Karate Kid movies. Uh, and in the early 70s, Seagal was, uh, I think he was a college dropout, but he was I think he got a black belt with Fumio Demura's school in Los Angeles. And at the time there was this uh, Japanese theme park in uh, that area called the deer park. And they had like, yeah, they had things that were unique for the time. They had like pagodas and they had um, what, what do you, you know, Japanese uh, drumming or whatever displays and they had deer walking around the park. So, you know, um, and so they had karate demonstrations and Seagal was one of Fumio Demuro's demonstration guys. And apparently, from stories I've read, he would walk around with a drum, beating a drum and saying, hey, come to the karate demonstration, you know, walking around the park. And at that time, he was like a tall, thin, you know, Russian Jew, uh, Irish guy. So he wasn't like this <laughs> you know, one of those couch that he is now. <laughs> so he did the he uh, he performed at the Deer Park. He was a Fumio Demuro black belt. Somehow he ended up in Japan in the 70s. Uh, again, the past is very murky about all this. Says he learned Aikido in Japan, which a lot of guys in the 70s were doing that. They were going to Japan, ironically, because of the Bruce Lee movies and um, thinking, that, well, I got to learn karate. And um, so that we go to <laughs> Japan to even though Bruce did Kung Fu or, you know, a screen version of Kung Fu that's from China. But uh, they would go to Japan. They would um, take karate lessons and stuff. And the Japanese schools are pretty harsh. But Seagal fell for Aikido pretty hard and did earn a black belt. And he claims it was sort of a shotgun wedding uh, with his uh, Japanese, the woman who, you know, became the mother of his kids, his first wife. Mm. Uh, I forget her name. Uh, her father owned a dojo, according to the traditions of that family, allegedly, like, the son gets to has to open his own Aikido dojo. So making him the first, <laughs> the first white man to, or non-American or non-Japanese to, to run an Aikido dojo in Japan. Uh, would you say in comparison to the other martial arts, at least the, the main ones is Aikido more of a defensive. I mean, I know a lot of them are self-defense more defensive, but is Aikido more defensive than others? It's all defense. It's um, <clears throat> I took it in college, ironically, because of the Seagal movies. But what it is, is it's really, it's a form of, um, I think some people call it 
Aki Jiu-Jitsu, but um, it's like a softer, more passive version of that. And uh, I mean, it's all arm locks, wrist locks, throws. There's very little striking, if any. You move in the same way a, okay, you know, the Japanese art of uh, the sword, kendo. All the stances and movements are based on kendo, but all the techniques seem to be from jujitsu, aki jujitsu. There is no ground fighting like um, what you see in judo or Brazilian jujitsu. Okay. Uh, but it's all kind of stand, stand, passive defense. You're relaxed the whole time. It's a really hard thing to set your mind to. Like if you've done other arts and then you take Aikido, it's a completely different, you know, it's, it's hard to believe it even, it even works, you know, because it's so opposite of karate or, you know, whatever, Kung Fu, Wing Chun, boxing, American boxing, because it's a completely different uh, mentality. But um, I mean, it, it'll work for people. But of course, the joke I've always heard is Aikido is a good art, but Dick Cavett takes Aikido. And a lot of Aikido <laughs> students are like Dick Cavett. <laughs> so, you know, if you go to, um, and, and again, I, I think it's a good art for people who don't want to, let's say you don't, you don't have time to uh, work out a lot. You, you don't want to be in shape or whatever. It's, it's good for that. Seagal has proven that you can be out of shape and be a really good Aikido man. But it's, it's a different art. It's, it's pretty much throws, arm locks. You have that move where he brings the, um, the arm like a clothesline in pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a, 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 a thing he's very famous for. Um, it's not as violent and brutal as he portrays it on screen, though. Like he's got the arm breaks and the, the blood and mm-hmm. right. the, street, the street moves. He's just mixing in something else with, for that. Yeah, yeah, he's throwing in kicks, and he's got the friggin' he, I, I, one movie. I think he did a bunch. Actually, in this film, I think he does a bunch of Wing Chun punches to uh, um, Bill Forsythe's head <laughs> or his double's head. So, um, you know, they, it's just um, he is said to be really good because when I took Aikido in college, I talked to the sensei and I asked him about Seagal, and he says I know some people who know him. And they have trained with him and they said that that art is not designed for big men, by the way. It's not, mm. it's designed for little guys, you know, built like the founder. Um, I think Uyashiba is his name. He was, and he was a little old, frail Japanese man. And um, built more for speed then? Yeah. Well, he says that he has modified that art to his size and he's very, very good. Like he's just devastating. Basically, he's the the old saying in martial arts, it's hard to train a big guy in martial arts because the tech it's based on speed and technique. It's not based on size, not based on strength. It's based on speed mm-hmm. and technique, being fast mm-hmm. and your technique has to be good. And big guys are so used to using their strength that they don't always get the technique right or they don't emphasize speed. But according to these guys who trained with him, they said he was pretty good. Like he had modified those moves and he had modified it to his size and, and he was pretty sharp and now he was again i will emphasize he was not the size of a refrigerator or two refrigerators at the time you know he was still kind of tall he was out for justice size mm-hmm. back when i was taking it but um he has taken other stuff I mean karate and i think he's taken kempo from ed parker you'll notice in this film he has a stick fight with danny and asano mm-hmm. who was uh, bruce lee's I think second in command during his uh, time in LA in the sixties. 
Um, Danny and Asano taught Bruce Lee how to use, the, I think, the nunchaku and the escriba sticks, the Filipino fighting sticks. And he was teaching Seagal at the time. He was teaching him stick work. You'll notice in the film, Seagal loses a stick fight with Inosanto. So he uses his Aikido on Inosanto really quick and knocks him out. So it's mm -hmm. like Danny could beat him in sticks, but, um, and Danny played a character called Sticks and uh, Seagal, but beats him with his Aikido because he can't, he can't beat him with the stick. So that was kind of a sign of respect to him. Yeah, I've seen a few of Seagal's demonstrations. You find them, they're abundant on YouTube. Oh, yeah. And it's just him just throwing people to the mat, just, right. you know, just breaking wrists, flipping people, just throwing them to the ground, just over and over again. <laughs> That's always the joke on his more recent films is uh, like he'll be sitting in a car and somebody will try to grab him and he's just like waving his hands around. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to do and like, anything and like that's how he beats him he just waves his hands maybe grabs a wrist and breaks it and like, well, very, like very little effort like he never yeah, he's breaks... confusing him you know he's throwing his hands around and confusing him, you know like he taught machida to do with that kick in uh, the ufc world world famous ufc trainer <laughs> <laughs> he he taught anderson silva the front kick that knocked out vitor belfort <laughs> <laughs> he also claims he taught Leota Machida that kick and yeah, it was Machida, the same kick. He, he knocked yeah, out Machida Couture, did an so. interview with Jesse, the karate nerd, and you know, I haven't watched it yet, so I can't really speak on it. I don't know if he said Seagal's lying or anything like that. <laughs> well, Machida was a karate guy to start with, so he was. Um I mean, there's what Seagal explained about the way he threw the kick was supposedly what made the difference, and there there is a slight difference with it. Machida explained that what he did was he, he, because I saw a little part of the Jesse video, but he raises his hand to distract the fighter, like to make him look at his hands. Mm -hmm. So the way fighters fight is they look in your eyes and he moved his hands and then threw the kick and, and nailed him with that. Cause the guy wasn't looking at his lower body. So right. it, it was a, it's a pretty good strategy. I don't know if Seagal really taught him that, but you know, yeah, I don't know. Most guys don't throw that kick to the face. I, yeah. I think is the deal is uh, right, right. nobody expects it to come that high exactly the element of surprise has probably become so much more important in MMA than it was like 25 years ago when everybody was just doing the same two things it just got down to like either doing jujitsu or buoy tie or both and then eventually you just had to do both and the fights got really boring but then some of these guys started bringing other stuff in well, Pro yeah. would, would do that uh that crescent kick to the head yeah. Like he could snap it so quick and knock people out. He knocked out something like five or six fighters that way. And when I was a kid taking like Taekwondo and Shotokan, we never thought the crescent kick could be used effectively. We said, what is this silly ballet thing? There's pro cop <laughs> whipping it out and knocking, knocking guys five times my size down. You know? was, he was knocking them unconscious too. Uh, yeah, like, it was like bad. He it did that no... Billy Jack kick. Perfect. Good Lord. I guess it's legit. It was not a TKO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm told that movie he did with mike tyson he left the set after like a day or two of shooting they still had to shoot a ton of footage so they brought in a double who was like a skinny guy who looked nothing like him they put a wig on him and so they had a bunch of action scenes with the double and then they brought Seagal, when Seagal came back he just shoots all these close-ups of like his face and stuff <laughs> doing the dialogue and insert it there you know and by the way his size comes from uh my understanding from what i've heard from different sources is uh he can't keep his he cannot keep his face out of the italian uh buffets like he eats like a maniac 
and yeah, pasta. Any, all day. I'm not he does surprised. not like exercising. He hates running. He refuses to. You know, he's like there was. He, he apparently said, "Yeah, they want me losing weight. You know, running and shit. I don't like that. You know, so he's. And if these Russians and Serbians or whoever the hell is financing his movies these days are willing to pay him to show up and look fat and just wear black coats and everything, he'll take the money. He doesn't care. Well, isn't he? Is he living in Moscow still? He, he I believe he lives. He, he has. I think he lives in is um i think somewhere in there's like a it's like a, a city with a lake or something i think it's actually moscow i think he lives in some town or village nearby right he's got a nice place there because because him and putin are like best friends yeah yeah they are they've been they've and been they, friends for years yeah i i know like 10 years ago Segal became a russian citizen and everybody was pissed off about that for some reason but yeah i don't, I don't know why they, even though they already hated him you know I, yeah it's like why do you care uh gerard <laughs> depardieu was also given a russian citizenship and he moved to russia oh really yeah <laughs> and i think mickey rourke was probably offered one and who knows he might have quietly taken it just nobody paid attention he's doing a new film with polanski so he's got that to look forward to oh yeah oh boy <laughs> I think I saw an article the other day that said France isn't going to show Polanski movies anymore. And so he was like, where are my movies going to show? <laughs> well, show in Hollywood. Well, if Michael Jackson was still around, they would show him at the ranch. Yes. <laughs> Just real quick. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at IMDb's biography of Steven Seagal. They have his nicknames listed. They are, they are the great one. Lord Steven and the master of Aikido. <laughs> yeah, you, you bring up the uh, the Russian uh, citizenship. Now he's living in Russia. Uh, John, if you remember, maybe about a month ago, I shared a video to the MMC Facebook page. And it was about uh, some, I forget the guy's name. He's a YouTuber. Spent a whole day with Steven Seagal. Mm-hmm. Was it Jesse Encamp? Jesse Encamp, the karate I think, yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he um, met him in Abu Dhabi, I believe. Yep, or... yep Abu Dhabi. And um, seems like he goes there regularly, maybe to do demonstrations. Because I know he's done a bunch in Russia, but, uh, I mean, they ate dinner with him that night, and, you know, he was had to be sushi. You know, it's, they made it seem like Seagal's, like, constantly just eating sushi. <laughs> which, if, if he ate sushi, <laughs> he'd be a lot thinner. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, this has got to be for show. Like, I'm sure, I mean, people like sushi. He was in Japan forever, but he's not eating this every day. <laughs> yeah, you turn the camera off, the cream pies come out, you know. <laughs> Abu Dhabi is uh, is famous for its grappling tournaments. Okay. Um, going way back. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's always a big deal if somebody won a, a competition in Abu Dhabi. Well, also, I think he's probably teaching... Arab sheiks private Aikido lessons for big bucks. That's that'd yeah, be my probably. Yeah, he's uh he's turning seventy this year. If he hasn't turned seventy yet, turning seventy and his uh, hair dye turned seven months. <laughs> his wig turned thirty. His 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 wig probably turned five. His hair <laughs> transplants turned thirty. I think still combing his hair like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big deal at the time because uh, he was the first action hero to uh to have like the ponytail started the whole ponytail warrior thing that was real big in the 90s with a lot of straight to video kickboxing stars making movies for pm entertainment and uh it's his name on power rangers tommy the green ranger 
Yeah. Actually, ended up he ended up being like a legit MMA fighter. Yeah. And he won too. Like yeah, he's, I he's who was, legit. was that or the red one? The Red Ranger just got arrested for scamming the uh the COVID <laughs> relief. <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> now this is the Green Ranger, who's actually um, I think he owns some martial arts schools or something. He's he's done really well for himself. Uh, what about the Black Ranger? Is that another one that's I'm mixing him up with something else? Another Yellow Ranger who was the Vietnamese actress died in a car crash, mm. which was was unfortunate. And that was pretty early on, like the mid '90s or something. And um, she was in the Crow movie, the Crow sequel, that sequel everybody hated. And uh, with the French guy as the lead. And uh, I think she was dead not long or maybe even before it was released. I can't remember. Mm. Well, let's get into some of the details here. Okay. Um, actually, right before we do, um, we should talk about just um, if you can give us a little more knowledge on just how he kind of broke into the business. Mm-hmm. And I know Above the Law was his first major film, but uh, he was doing other consulting in the 80s. Yep. Yeah uh never say never again he was the fight choreographer on that allegedly broke sean connery's wrist um not much sympathy for either person there you know they're they're both kind of jerks but was it connery's uh woman slapping wrist or Uh, he's put it over the shelf for a while it's like you bastard broke my wrist Uh, that that interview with barbara walters is so fucking funny i know i know it's inappropriate and it's not politically correct and he's you know, I'm not going to say I agree with him, but it is so funny how Walters is thinks she's like, it's like a gotcha moment, you know, like, remember right. uh, last time I talked to you, you talked about how, you know, you would hit a woman. He's <laughs> you just stares at her dead in the face. He goes, yeah, my opinion hasn't changed. <laughs> Sometimes they're hysterical. You have to do it. <laughs> just does not give a fuck. <laughs> it used to be a staple in old movies. Like like old movies, like I don't know when it stopped, but like every, like I don't know how many movies from the the eighties and earlier, they are always slapping women. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the nineteen forties, they call it slapping the crazy dame. You know, <laughs> I think Roger Moore phased it out after um, Spy Who Loved Me, or yeah. right before Spy Who Loved Me, because I don't think he does it at all in Spy Who Loved Me. Really, he Man, does it. Gun, he's like bending their arms. Yeah, Live and Let Die and uh, Man the Golden Gun. He roughs up some women. I mean, it yeah, was, uh, was the last one. It was so such a trope that Airplane parodied it by having like a line of like 50 people getting ready to slap this hysterical woman who couldn't, <laughs> couldn't calm down. <laughs> That's how common it was. <laughs> oh, man. Ryan Gosling brought it back in Drive. Oh yeah, it's kind of shocking did. to see it uh, in the film. But even in the past, you know, that, that came out I think 2011, so uh, you know, 11 years ago. But still, even the movie that recent is shocking. Well, that that Euro trash that directed it probably thought he's just paying tribute to old cinema because it's all he's doing. <laughs> so you get to throw that in there. That's make Eric's, it authentic. That's Eric's favorite movie. You better you better tread yeah. lightly. It's in my top five. <laughs> <laughs> right I, if i remember john's opinion correctly it's uh it's decent it's mediocre yeah, it's, it's solid <laughs> it's all right i don't dislike it. it's all right i own i own the blu-ray it's all right i like yeah. it like it, i actually i liked um that that follow-up he did in thailand only oh only well, god forgives yeah. yeah 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 and uh trent 
Trent Reynolds, one of our listeners and one of my old friends, he like it, he didn't believe that I really liked it. He thought I was trolling. <laughs> I said, no, I enjoyed it. I laughed my head off. That like thing. the Muay Thai? Yeah, yeah. And there's barely any Muay Thai fighting in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that fight with Gosling's a big letdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it had uh what's her name? That actress from uh that Kristen Scott Thomas? Yeah, yeah. She comes in, she's a <laughs> she's a riot. She's like Cutting him down his Thai girlfriend and insulting her and incestuous slut and everything. <laughs> just like I was like this, I was I was laughing my head off at screening <laughs> at Alamo and I'm surprised I wasn't banned. I'd only ever seen her in the English Patient, I think, and then <laughs> to see her in uh, Only God Forgives is just like what? So jarring. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, that that Thai police captain character, mm -hmm. yeah, in um, a, a part of the script not filmed was he was always watching old westerns on TV. So his idea <laughs> of justice came from watching old Hollywood westerns. Oh, really? it, But it's not in there. Yeah. yeah but it kind of makes sense when you think about it, the way that character was in the movie. Yeah. He uh, created or wrote that movie get the idea from it after his wife suffered a miscarriage and he was angry with God and he wanted to fight God. And then he made only God forgives. Gives a little insight to uh Refn's uh, mindset going into that film. So you're saying it's about grief and trauma. That's super <laughs> you original. have to wonder. <laughs> well, I do get it. That is about fighting God because Gosling gets his ass worked by the police chief. Does not land a blow. He does. Nobody does against yeah. that guy. He's, he gets know, his he's ass kicked. Untouchable. So uh, where did we leave off? <laughs> yeah. Um, Seagal's early movie work, Never Say Never Again. Okay. And uh, he was also the choreographer on the Challenge, the John Frankenheimer movie, with Scott okay. Glenn playing the hero. Toshio Mifune is in the film which led to him making an infamous statement in an interview, something like, I know 10 times more about swordplay than uh, Toshiro Mifune. And who's that? Uh, the, the Japanese actors in all the Kurosawa films. Okay. Yeah, who was in The Seventh Samurai and Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Mm -hmm. Seagal claims he had to basically get Toshiro to brush up on his samurai sword <laughs> swordplay ability. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Scott Glenn. Um, little known thing about Scott Glenn, he's actually a big martial arts nut, and he's taken all different styles for years. And I think even before he was in the challenge, and um, but he's never really, other than the challenge, he, he doesn't. And I guess playing stick on those stupid Marvel shows on Netflix, um, he doesn't really show that in movies at all. So, but he's a big fanatic for that stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, and Mike Douglas shows. Mike du he Seagal used to do appearances on Mike Douglas showing off Aikido. Okay. Yeah, and some of the in like in the eighties, and that that's where he was first seen. And he has he had an article in Black Belt Magazine in like eighty three or eighty two about Aikido, and you know just because he had a dojo in L A. and uh, the Black Belt Magazine offices are in Los Angeles, so hey, it's easy to get a easier to get a story about an instructor who's right down the street than then, to actually go talk right. to some serious respected teacher in kansas you know and then 10 years later in black belt magazine the dirty dozen calls out steven seagal oh, god <laughs> yeah 
Bob Wall made an ass out of himself with that that nonsense. Who are all those guys? I was watching that on one of the videos today. <laughs> it was like twelve guys that were all in various forms of martial arts, and they're were they calling out Steven Seagal like you know saying they can kick his ass? He's not that great in martial arts, or were they calling him out for? I don't know. I guess solely in their their martial arts. <laughs> From what I remember, Bob Wall was pissed off because Seagal um was badmouthing chuck norris but mm. he badmouthed chuck norris in a way he said he just didn't like chuck norris's films and um which he had a point norris is making terrible movies for canon films at the time <laughs> and uh it actually killed his career his movie career was killed when he was doing the canon films because although missing in action was a hit none of the others were they just did worse and worse at the box office because mm-hmm. and um I always say that the the earlier Norris films that he made for American cinema were so much better. And he was working with real directors, real screenwriters. Um, the, the, the Octagon, is that one of them? The Octagon is one of them. Um, his last film before the Canon contract it was Code of Silence, which was released, I think, after Missing in Action. It was made for Orion Pictures, and mm-hmm. Andy Davis was the director of that. That's a terrific Norris film and one of his best movies. And he had the critics raved about it. Apparently other studios wanted to work with him and make real movies with him. But according to Don the Dragon Wilson, the kickboxer turned straight to video star, Norris signed a deal with Canon Films that paid him 200 grand a month. <laughs> so he wasn't working for any other studios for a few wow. years. Yeah. And um, so Code of Silence was good enough to where when Seagal was making his first movie for Warner Brothers. And allegedly, this was a bet between Mike Ovitz and the president of Warner Brothers, who were both Aikido students of Seagal's. And I guess they had him come in and do an Aikido demo in front of the execs at Warner Brothers. Um, they wanted to make a bet they could make him an action star. So they, they hired Andy Davis, and they hired the production team of Code of Silence to make Above the Law. And um, the screenwriters, I think, were... Um, I mean, we did an episode about it on the Midnight Movie Cowboys, but it was like uh, the guy who wrote Gates of Fire, uh, Stephen Pressfield and Ron Shusett, mm. um, wrote that screenplay. It's, it's it's a good movie, and it's got the same composer as Out for Justice, David Michael Frank. And um, it was a good film. It was released regionally, so it wasn't like this big hit that opened on Friday across the country and everybody went to see it. It was a regional thing. It kind of did a slow rollout. I saw it maybe a month after it played in New York, and... Um, it got critical, some critical acclaim and, you know, had a cult following and did really great on video. Then they put out Hard to Kill. They opened that wide. And that was the number one box office hit for like a month. Because everybody had watched the video, had seen Above the Law on video. He built up a following and people really liked Hard to Kill. Made Mark for Death. And then that was a big hit. And then Alfred Justice was supposed to be his super mafia production. Yeah, John Flynn, the, the director. He said that the original title was The Price of Our Blood, meaning mm-hmm. like Mafia's Blood. But Warner Brothers said, no, it's got to be a three-word title. <laughs> above the, can't mess with the formula. You got Above the Law, Hard to Kill, Mark for Death. After this would be On Deadly Ground. Yeah. I mean, Under Siege, uh, that's, that. I don't know, I guess that just doesn't count. But Because, <laughs> I mean, that was after this, so. Yeah. I guess they, that was his biggest they, brand, they would branch out from the three-word titles, but. Oh, well, they man. brought back Andy Davis for Under Siege, at least. Um, 
Yeah, um, it was shot as a price of our blood. I remember when he was being interviewed because Mark for Death was doing great in theaters and they were interviewing him on the set of uh, The Price of Our Blood was what they called it. And they just said it was about two friends who grew up in Brooklyn. They act like it was this big epic. And I was reading the IMDb trivia page the other day, like all good podcasters do. (laughs) And um, they were saying that it was actually a much longer cut originally. It was over Mm -hmm. two hours long. And it was done like more like an epic. That's why you have like two montages in this film because it simplified all these scenes that they had shot. And there's some there's some continuity logic like gaps in the film that um, were kind of covered up with the quick editing. Because I noticed the movie is edited very tightly. And it's funny because I was watching a, a Korean movie from the 70s. I said uh, this afternoon and I was like, man, this could have used the editing they did on Out for Justice because they just they cut the thing so tight. They cut it down to 90 minutes. I think it was actually a good thing because had this been a two-hour mafia epic, I think it would have flopped. I think it would have bored people. Well, there's the rumors, right, that they cut a bunch of Forsyth scenes because Seagal thought he was upstaging them or somebody thought he was upstaging Seagal and, you know, he can't upstage the the star of the film, so they got to take out some of Forsyth's. I mean, he is chewing the scenery in in all of his scenes, but... (laughs) I was laughing about that because I said, everybody's awful in this movie. What are they talking about? (laughs) It's like, there's no way they cut like good scenes. Like, I mean, it's funny because when I first saw this, I had not been to New York. I'd never really been outside of the South that much. And uh, I figured, well, this must be the way Brooklyn is. Everybody talks like they're in a Danny, Danny Aiello movie. It's like a Danny Aiello <laughs> movie without Danny Aiello. <laughs> Watching it the other night, and, and I'm not dissing Danny Aiello. He's one of my favorite actors. I was actually sad the day he died. Um, but I realized the other night watching it that the the accents are so over the top. Yeah, I think it's what Danny Aiello called. This is not these are not Italian accents. This is Jew. This is Yiddish theater Italians. <laughs> and I think it's true. I, I mean, yeah. it's so overdone and so everybody's uh, you know. It's just like um, the f word from everybody that mm-hmm. it's just it this must be yiddish theater italian italian <laughs> acting because he, he said that of the sopranos by the way that's what aiello described because he hated that show and it said they're yiddish that's yiddish theater italians they're not italians <laughs> that's one thing that stood out to me is just how italian everybody was it's yeah. just like they're all very very italian uh, and they want you to know that they're italian by, by everything they say and it's interesting that you say that this was a much longer cut originally because it felt like they threw a bunch of scenes in there to pad the time. And yeah. uh, like, especially like the scenes with the dog seemed like they just threw them in at the end. And then like, we need something to like soften this guy up a little bit. Let's have them find a, a dog that gets discarded on the side of the road. And, and like, there's a scene later in the movie where he literally grabs the dog in the pasture seat. And he says, Hey, I almost forgot about you. <laughs> 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 it's he gave, he gave the dog an italian name coraggio like that, that dog has literally been in his pasture seat for like 15 hours <laughs> <laughs> nobody's given away a purebred german shepherd puppy no i mean that thing is worth some money no it just drops out the window in a bag it's because the as any viewer of steven seagal lawman can tell you 
he's a big animal lover and he does benefits for the new orleans shelters and he plays blues guitar to raise money for the shelters like that that dog definitely pissed and shitted in his car like he didn't yeah. he, he didn't take it out once he, he brought it out into the dog into the store to buy some dog food Hey, gonna eat like uh, some of the dog, like the puppy food, dog food for puppies. <laughs> that from Jersey is it? I don't want none of the toxic shit. We we missed out on the uh, the big scene where he like uh, lectures the dog for relieving itself in his car. Did you piss in my fucking car? <laughs> oh, oh! <laughs> Did just take you to Jersey. I just dropped you off there, bridge and tunnel, good dog. What the fuck? Leaving you on the turnpike. I, um, I, I laughed so hard when he said, "I almost forgot about you" because I'm like, so did I. <laughs> I was like, like, I think everybody making this movie did. It was like a naked gun joke or something. <laughs> Frank Drebin was like, "Oh, I forgot about you." Speaking of uh, how Italian everything is, let's let's get into the cast here. So Steven Seagal plays Gino Fellino. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of vowels among these guys. <laughs> Uh, William Forsythe plays Richie Madano. <laughs> that that bowl cut and mustache combo on, on William Forsythe <laughs> is quite the sight. <laughs> Close personal friend William Forsythe will uh, post the picture on Twitter, some encrypticon, <laughs> where uh, he used the QA to uh, waste his time asking him about the devil's rejects. <laughs> uh, but I also asked him about Sergio Leone, so I did give a Hey, I almost forgot about you. Hey. <laughs> oh, hey, well, what's uh, what's that cat's name that the listeners Fez. can't see? Fez. Yeah, Fez. Is yeah. that the? Because uh, you you were uh, I saw your post today about the animal shelter in Denver. Yeah. Is that because uh, that's a rescue cat, right? And is that the three-legged one? Fez is not uh, the rescue cat. Okay. Uh, Fez is the one I got from a family up in fort collins that lived on a farm and they had a litter of cats didn't get their cat fixed and i went over and saw the kittens and uh he was a black one with no tail because he was a manx so Mm. i i picked him and he ended up being the last one adopted when my wife went up to get him he's 15 years old so the the three-legged cat is not down here with me right now Mm. yeah so so now it's time to send him back to the farm (laughs) (laughs) i don't think anything's gonna kill this cat he's cost me so much damn money because he got the (laughs) the urinary crystals and everything it's like well i'm dropping the coin on him i think he's Mm. gonna stick around there you go uh jerry orbach plays uh, ronnie donziger donziger uh joe champa plays vicky felino Good lord, is it this is like those Looney Tunes where they're speaking Italian but they're just saying pasta fed the cheese? <laughs> they, they always call her Vic, though. they never call her Vicky, it's always Vic. <laughs> <laughs> oh Vic, I'm gonna make it to divorce. <laughs> There's a really good uh five second cutaway gag from Family Guy about people uh cutting in front of a group of Italians in a movie theater line. <laughs> Return to cutting in line in front of Italians. Hey, Copernicus, why don't you navigate yourself to the back of the line with your feet and stand there with your shirt? <laughs> is, is that the one joke that the manatees didn't push the idea of balls? <laughs> yep. Um, Sh- uh, Shireen Mitchell plays Lori Lupo. <laughs> Sal Richards is Frankie. 
Gina Gershon is Patty Madano. That's the sister of uh, William Forsythe's character. Jay Acovone plays Bobby Arms. <laughs> then Nikki Corello plays Joey Dogs. <laughs> Julie Strain as Roxanne. <laughs> Uh, Robert uh, Lasardo is Bucci. He's in uh, several uh, Seagal pictures. Mm-hmm. I saw him in uh, Hard to Kill. I've been watching a lot of Seagal lately, so it's all been kind of blending together. Yeah, it does. It's easy to distinguish under Siege, of course, but I was watching uh, Hard to Kill the other night, and I'm like, oh, shit, was that in Out for Justice, Hard to Kill? But, um, yeah. Uh, John Tolls Bay plays King. Let's see. Anyone else of note? already mentioned roxanne uh gianni russo is sammy got uh what's his name uncle was it uncle junior uncle June. from the sopranos yeah. was plays carado soprano um dominic yeah. uh Chinese. yeah he plays bobby's uh uh dad. No, richie's yeah. dad or whatever. yeah richie's dad and he goes i come home every day because i'm italian <laughs> i work <laughs> you think i am lying to you uh juliana margulies plays rika Yep. It was right before her uh, ER days. Let's see anyone else of notes here? We got John Leguizano with Boy in the Alley. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember seeing him. Raymond Cruz is Hector. Hector. <laughs> I think that'll do it. Synopsis The gruesome murder of a Brooklyn detective will turn the case into a personal vendetta when the deceased's best friend and fellow officer will unleash an all out attack against a psychotic mafia enforcer's brutal gang. So this film starts with a, uh, or staking out a, a drug deal that they want to bust. But uh, there's a pimp beating up some uh, uh, prostitute of his and Gino Carano cannot, uh, cannot stand that. So he Felino. goes in there. Gino, Gino Felino, Felino. sorry. What did I say? Carano? Carano. <laughs> Gino, Gino Felino. Gino Felino. <laughs> The, the aggression will not stand, so he jumps into action, and uh, he starts whipping some ass like he usually does. Though I got to I got to point out that the best shot in this film sets up the movie perfectly. I thought, what he so he throws the pimp through the window, and then he takes him out, and then throws him through the the windshield, and there's a hole in the windshield that his head made, and the, the camera freeze frames as Seagal's walking past it, his his head's perfectly in frame of of the uh, the hole in the windshield. Seagal's looking right through it and it's freeze frame, you know, out for justice, Steven Seagal. <laughs> it's awesome. It is. I was like, I'm going to enjoy this film. <laughs> it's a great intro. It's 1991 uh, action film in a heart in, in one shot right there. Yeah, it's got that early nineties uh, music score. Um, yeah. David Michael Frank, uh, who did the scores for, I think all the Seagal movies up to that point, except for um, maybe Mark for death. Yeah. And um, also did the music for Code of Silence, which I wish Marie Sarabon would release on CD. If anybody working at that company wants needs a suggestion and listens to this show, think about it. <laughs> a little tired of that YouTube upload. It's not going to be there forever. Yeah. It, the, the music kind of reminded me of the first Ninja Turtles music uh, uh, movie. Yeah. The first mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles movie. Yep. Very similar. Some xylophones and saxophones, right? Yeah. At, at one point, they just throw in the Beastie Boys at one point, just because. Yeah. <laughs> there was another. They were ahead of their time. It wasn't cool to listen to the Beastie Boys that year. 
yeah there there was a there was another pop song or a rock song or something that they played later in the movie too i forget what it was now well greg allman did like the in theme song or whatever that actually has seagal uh interspersed into the song going you think you're a tough guy (laughs) i thought there was another popular one maybe i'm maybe i'm mistaken there might there might be i i can't remember i i was watching my my old Snapcase Warner Brothers DVD last night, uh, which actually <laughs> is a flipper. On one side, you get the pan and scan. The other side, you get the widescreen. Mm. It's like, man, this must have come out in like 1998. Yeah, like it was working at Comp USA or some horrible place like that. Uh, so from there, we're taken to Richie. He uh, ambushes a cop as he's out with his family. He's out with his wife and young daughter. He guns him down in cold blood and you can't really make it out at the time but well actually you can see he th- puts a picture on his body you can't see what it is but and then he flees the scene uh right before he gets into some road rage with a unsuspecting woman <laughs> just wants oh, to yeah. move his car how many times did he shoot bobby and bobby was still breathing at the end like <laughs> like uh, it took bobby a while to die bobby was a tough guy <laughs> <laughs> He was a real tough guy. He was a tough cop. <laughs> well, I don't think we mentioned it yet, but the I don't think I read it on the cast list, but his snitch at the end that helps Seagal at the end. I think his name was Piccolino. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't know. If that was the first or last name, but it was it was a name. <laughs> <laughs> he was selling seltzers out of the uh the the ice chest on the on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, it's like seltzer is that hard to buy in a bodega in New York? Or well, give me a six pack of seltzer. I remember as a kid, or well, I wasn't really a kid. I was in college, was watching this. I was like, the hell do they just is seltzer like a big drink in New York? I don't get it because they were selling New York seltzer at the grocery store. Is like is this some sort of big New York uh, thing or something? The traffic's so bad in Brooklyn, people are just sitting in their cars waiting for people to walk around with some seltzer for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Selling for, them out of ice, ice boxes or, or uh, coolers. Cooler. For, for a dollar a bottle. It was six bucks for a six pack. Yeah, when I actually went to New York, I was stunned because Coca-Cola, like a can of Coke was a dollar. Or, really, or 75. I think it was, it was like 90 cents or something. It was like crazy at the time because like down south, it was like 50 cents everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so it was like Jesus Christ. Well, and falling down wasn't he pissed because it was fifty cents? That's Something like that. Store. It was at some price that seems completely nice now. <laughs> I don't even know what the prices are now because it keeps changing every day. Um, oh God, I don't even want to know. <laughs> no. Uh, want to get a six pack of diet soda? It's like seven dollars or something. I'm like, geez, did I move to New York all of a sudden? <laughs> I don't live in Colorado no more. It's just the gas prices are going up. You just got to buy an electric vehicle. It's not that hard. Yeah. It's not like gas prices affect anything else. <laughs> Yo, I don't think I can afford a Tesla. The AOC might be returning hers. She's thinking about it. If she's thinking about it because he uh, he kind of dissed her, threw some shade her way. Yeah, he told her to put a poll out to her Twitter followers about which you... Uh, trust less you know a politician or a billionaire (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i dare you to you know to post it to your followers because of course you know musk did you know to his right 
Well she, well, she made some comment a few weeks back about some billionaire or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and he says, obviously uh, about Musk. He says, I, I'm flattered, but I just don't think of you that way. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> that, I think he said something like, please, please uh, don't flirt with me. I'm shy. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's having too much fun. You know, whatever, whatever evil he is, is uh, definitely balanced out by how much fun he's having on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. He's a necessary. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Up for Justice. So every other film from this era, if something like this happened, you know, you're off the case. You're too close to it. Yeah. But this one is just like, oh, here you go. Here's an unmarked police car and a shotgun. <laughs> go find you him. You don't go kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go kill Richie. <laughs> I grew up with the guy. Yeah, I grew up with him. I got to kill him. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's a rabid I, dog. I, I loved the introduction to Gino at home because uh, his kid is there and he's like dad can we play catch or what you know like even the kid's super italian yeah he's like you do your homework <laughs> <laughs> obviously it wasn't english class and then uh then he uh he gets the call as they're going out and uh he's gonna call his wife he's like hey can i take the kid over to your place vic <laughs> i gotta go kill richie <laughs> I gotta go kill Richie. They just killed Bobby. And then they meet at the uh, at the crime scene, and uh, he goes, "She says, are you all right?" And she goes, uh, "No, I'm not all right. I'm fucking like this. What, what do you think? He was my best friend, and it's just like all one uh, one note, like just monotone, like no no <laughs> fluctuation in his tone." I'm real sorry, you know. It was Richie McDonald. Laurie told the first officer Richie got out of the car and just stepped up. Bang. One thing, the green grocer said he thought he saw Richie toss something, like a card, maybe something. We didn't find nothing. Gino, listen, we know every mob operation they got, and we're gonna squeeze them till they give them up. Yeah, right. You do that, all right? But it's me that's gonna find this fucking guy, Richie. You know that. Um, you and Vicky. Forget about it. Divorce, divorce. Goes through this month. How'd it happen? Some wannabe wise guy asshole, Richie Madonna. Dope dealer, dope user. He was a guy from the neighborhood, too. Guy Bobby and Gino grew up with, so we don't have any reason why he would kill Bobby. Captain! Wait a second. Gino. Are you all right? No, I'm not all right. I'm fucking like this. What do you think? He was my best friend. Just pulled a woman out of a car over on 63rd and blew her brains out. It looks random. Three of his crew were with him. And one of them's got a tattoo on his neck. Yeah, I know the fucking guy. That's a butchie. He's a piece of shit. He's got a sheet as long as my arm. Gino, listen. We got a citywide out. Every available officer. We got ALs at the tolls, airports, trains, buses. Ronnie, Ronnie, this guy ain't gonna run. He'll sneak and he'll hide, but he ain't gonna leave Brooklyn. Now look. I'll feed you every dope digging dive he's got. Well, let me do it my way. You just give me an unmarked and a shotgun, all right? Don't you? You're too close. Let other cops do it. Yeah, I'm close because I know this guy better than anybody else. I know the neighborhood better than anybody else, better than the other cops do, all right? I just need a shotgun and uh, unmarked, and I'll take care of it. He wears a special forces beret. 
<laughs> yeah, I was. I wrote that down. What is the deal with that beret? It's actually owned. It was owned by a a student of his, who was a, a special forces retired special forces apparently done some work for the CIA, and it was mm-hmm. basically the student that gave Seagal all the all the kind of weird stories he could tell to act like he was in security before he got into showbiz. <laughs> Yeah, we were supposed to we were supposed to guard this guy, and they told they told us uh, no, he didn't need protection. And later that day, his car blew up. You know, <laughs> he would tell these stories and just kind of leave hints. Like that, Mark Wahlberg in nine eleven. Yeah, exactly. It was just kind of <laughs> the Seagal was claiming he really did it. You know, and he uh, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I guarded the Shah of Iran, and I, I guarded Desmond Tutu, and he was in Japan or something like that. There might be some level of truth to it, but I'm sure he exaggerated. But the thing is, people will rip on him for that, but then they'll praise Christopher Lee for doing the exact same thing about his World War II service. You yeah. know, Christopher Lee will claim the stories grew up around Christopher Lee that he worked as a spy and he was a, you know, whatever, SAS. Inspiration for James Bond, one of them, right? One of the rumors. Yeah, yeah. He was climbing, he was climbing walls and killing Nazis and machine gunning uh you know German soldiers and stuff. And um turns out he didn't do any of that stuff, but when people said it, he didn't deny it. He just kind of mm-hmm. let the legend grow. So you know, other actors they've all done it. Brian Dennehy claimed he was a Vietnam vet. Turns out he never left the base in Okinawa and played on the baseball team. So <laughs> A lot, a lot of these guys are stolen valor or, or phonies. I mean, it's just you you make your past murky and weird, and thus you would have more credibility, you know, doing your bad Italian accent in uh, movies like Out for Justice. No, well, Pleasance's valor isn't stolen, is it? He was really shot down, wasn't he? Yeah, Donald Pleasance, I think, was actually a POW. I think he was actually in that great escape prison that's depicted in that film. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of makes me think. A couple of years ago, everybody was pissed because they found out Sergeant Slaughter wasn't really a military <laughs> guy. <laughs> they, they found out that he was never a marine. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> they lied to you in wrestling. <laughs> oh man! The funniest thing is Ricky Steamboat's real name is Richard Blood. And yeah. I thought that was such a better name than Ricky Steamboat, but <laughs> they wanted to say he was Sammy Steamboat's nephew, so he just kept that name. Why do like he was always the baby face? So I don't know if Richard Blood works as a baby face name though. Could, could if he wanted to do a like could a be. fighting Indian gimmick like uh, Chief J Strongbow, but obviously they didn't want to give him that. Yeah, he's not Italian. Right, right, or. <laughs> <laughs> Wahoo McDaniel, I think, was a real, real Indian. And, I think Wahoo was real. I think Strongbow was Italian. Yeah, Wa- yeah, Strongbow was a fake. Um, I wonder if he was accepted to the tribe. Like, uh, what's his name? Iron Eyes Cody. He was the other fake, fake, and he was like an, a, a Sicilian guy or something. <laughs> he did the crying Indian ads, I think, with pollution. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he's Italian. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of fake Indians in wrestling in the eighties. Oh yeah. Seagal should have played an Indian in some Western or something. Yeah. Well, he uh, can't be, he can't be the bad guy. He, well, wait, where's that, that, that right fringe uh, moccasin Davy Crockett jacket or whatever it is? You know? oh, on Deadly Ground, yeah, he's definitely yeah. going for it. I was wondering in uh, in the scene where we were talking about an out for justice where he, where he shows up to the crime scene, he's got that sleeveless like vest on. Yeah. That was a unique look. Yeah, well, yeah the, he doesn't, doesn't have a physique. 
So I was curious, why is his character wearing the beret? I'm like, so his <laughs> he was a special forces who became a you know a cop. Yeah, apparently that's okay. good. that's the story. He went back to the neighborhood. <laughs> they made it seem like he never left the neighborhood. Like nobody ever leaves the neighborhood. Nobody leaves the neighborhood. Nobody knows the neighborhood better than me, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did they have that? Uh, they had the quote at the beginning. Uh, was it Arthur Miller or whatever? Like, <laughs> yes. like, you, like when you're in the neighborhood, you know where it ends, but uh, like there's no real like border. Or something like yeah, it's like, but you you recognize when somebody wasn't from the neighborhood. <laughs> it, it reminded me of that. Uh, did you guys see the? Uh, the movie about the four seasons uh, was it Jersey Boys? I haven't seen it. No, uh, East oh, okay. film. I'm not spoiling anything, but at the end of the film, um, the uh, you know they they were like, oh, it was all about the neighborhood and 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 you know pride pride in the neighborhood. Then it cuts to the guy who was their songwriter. Goes, I don't give a shit about the neighborhood. This <laughs> 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 <It's> hysterical. <laughs> I'm glad to be out of the neighborhoods. <laughs> <laughs> so Gino Felino. <laughs> he gets the go ahead to go and commit murder. Like the, like the, the cops aren't even worried about bringing him in. You know, They're, he knows Gino's just going to go kill him. Yeah. Uh, to the point where well, he's out for justice. <laughs> yeah. Right. So for true justice, it's actually revenge, but he's not for justice. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Punisher. It's not revenge. It's punishment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to uh, have a sit down with my local mob boss. I forget his name now. Uh, Don, Taro? Don, Vit- Don Vittorio. 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 So. He has a sit down with them. You can tell, the, you know, they go way back. Grew up in the neighborhood. So Still he's combing like, your hair like a girl. <laughs> Used to play stickball together. <laughs> so, we we'll go to the movies. We we'll go see who we go see. Fucking Roy Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> I could have done a script rewrite on that film. It would have been even funnier. Oh, man. Um, so they exchanged pleasantries and. They both talk about how they're both trying to get him, both trying to kill him because he's making too much noise for the mob there. And obviously, uh, Seagal wants revenge. So they're both kind of uh, agree to disagree. You know, we're like, well, if you get him first, then you get him first. But, you know, I'm going after him. I bring this up now because like 20 minutes later in the film, he makes a return visit to talk to Don Vittorio and he just immediately starts talking shit. About how he doesn't never respect you about at all. I never liked you. I never liked you. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't respect I d- you. Did I miss something? Is that a scene that was cut? I think a scene got cut that was supposed to resonate. <laughs> I with was that. so confused. I'm like, you were just like talking about how, you know, you, how much you respect each other and you have uh, mutual interests and in catching Richie and you know, you all go back. You're all from the same neighborhood and we're gonna we're gonna keep it in the neighborhood. You know, we're gonna settle this ourselves, whether it's you or me. And then it's like, I don't care if you go to jail, you die, I don't give a fuck about you. It's like, you what, what happened? Get, you get fucking raped in prison for all I fucking care. <laughs> Rikers Island, you go in there. Like the, the only thing that changed is they had a montage of the, the other cops raiding all of Vittorio's businesses. 
And so, like when he visits Vittorio the second time, he's like, "Hey, why are you why are you raiding all my businesses?" And he just goes, "I never respected you. I never liked you." <laughs> so, so, like, why weren't all those cops going after Richie? There should have been a big manhunt. This guy's killing people on the street. Well, Gino's got it. Yes, <laughs> we'll leave it to Gino. And he was he was literally just randomly killing people. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, the woman like the in the cop. street. The cop was personal, and then he started starting some crack, some coke, and and smoking some crack, and uh, he just started killing random people. So, I would call that an anti-drug message. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, Richie smokes crack in probably at least five scenes in this movie. It was the big plague at the time, so I I could see that that being emphasized. You mentioned Beastie Boys earlier. No sleep till Brooklyn. Did I also hear Digital Underground after that? I don't recall. I'm pretty sure I heard Shock G. That might be what I was thinking of earlier. Hmm. Not sure. I mean, we can look at the soundtrack in a little bit. but Honestly, the audio mix is so bad on the old Warner Brothers Flipper DVD. (laughs) I know that's shocking to hear, but uh, in the theater, I distinctively remember the sound effects for the fight scenes being really kind of crackling. And here Hmm. you can barely hear them because like like the typical kung fu film you know yeah yeah it was loud like when he crunched a bone you heard it like Mm -hmm. it was loud on the soundtrack but i've noticed that um a friend of mine noticed had had detailed this about um the eastwood movie every which way but loose and and the sequel any which way you can on the blu-rays they muffled the sound effects Hmm. and if you saw it in the theaters or saw it on vhs or on cable tv in the 80s the sound effects were loud when eastwood would hit people yeah. It sounded like a kung fu movie. It was a real mm-hmm. crackling effect, and it's muffled on the Blu-rays. When they remaster and redo the audio, they, for some reason, tone down those sound effects. I don't know why. Well, that's disappointing, because I picked up uh, Every Which Way But Loose Blu-ray maybe about six months ago or so, or a mm-hmm. year ago. I haven't watched it yet, so um, yeah, I'm going to be disappointed if there's a, you know, they pull the audio a little bit down on those. If you see the VHS anywhere in a thrift store, grab it. Because that's gonna have the yeah. audio. So where do we get to here? Let's get to I think the the first big action set piece after, of course, the intro would be in the uh, the butcher shop. Well, they have the the car chase that leads up to that. So like Gino's just driving around town looking for Richie, looking mm-hmm. yeah. everywhere. I I did like the uh, the part where he's he's going under the uh, the overpass area and the hooker comes up to his car and just goes. You want to fuck? And he just drives away laughing. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the most natural acting he did in the entire film. Did you hear what she said to me? You hear what she said, man? What she say, bro? Some homeless dude or something. You hear what she said? <laughs> just keep doesn't wait for him to answer. Just drives. It was like she was a real hooker, and he didn't this know that they it. were filming. It, it looked like a real, like an improvised scene. <laughs> I thought he came off good in that scene. I go, that's some real acting right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he I came it, off likable and real. And it might have been just something natural, like like maybe they didn't script that. <laughs> it just happened to be rolling camera at the same time. Yeah, that's what it looked like. I think it was all set up, but it was it was it was intentional to look like a natural event or something. <laughs> it was the most natural he seemed in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah, he was good in that scene. And uh, yeah, he catches uh, Richie uh, buying some more henchmen, and I think he buying some more drugs too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they get the the nice car chase there, with uh, Seagal's going between the uh, 
uh, what do you call it? like the overpass uh, support beams, and he's just like bouncing his car because it's it's so uneven. <laughs> <laughs> it's the David Dinkins in New York, I think. <laughs> He's basically driving on the median, and uh, yeah, like I don't know how he didn't blow the suspension or pop a tire or something. But he doesn't happen in movies. <laughs> well, even if it does, the next the next cut, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, like it never happened. But uh, yeah, he chased him to the butcher shop, as uh, Mulder had pointed out earlier. Phenomenal fight scene in the butcher shop. I yeah. love it with the, the guy with the butcher knife. Or the the meat cleaver into his own leg that was incredible, and then uses it later to uh, basically pin him to the wall. So funny, it reminded me of. So you ever played? Uh, you ever heard of the game Hammerschlagen drinking game? Never heard. No. Of that. Okay. Well, what it is is it, it's, you get a big log or right? a big stump, and everyone gets a nail. You got to use a not a ball peen hammer, but it's the another peen um, that I'm thinking of. Um, it's got a big, uh, bigger big peen. It's got a big peen on it. Got a big peen on it, <laughs> like a big round front, and on the back, it's uh, it gets down to narrow. And so what you have to do is you have to try and drive your nail into the log, flush, but only using the back, you know, skinny part of the hammer, and you have to hold it on the log and then swing down in one motion. You can't like hold it above it and try and line it up. Like you have to just do one swing. It goes around in a circle until, you know, somebody gets it flush. And then the, you know, the, everyone else has to pound it in. And then how many pounds it takes is how many drinks you have to take. If you bend your nail, you got to lose a turn bending to back. There are different rules or whatever, but it's a drinking game. I don't know if it's a Midwest thing or what have you, but I remember in college, I was at uh, Brett's alma mater, Mankato, partying with some friends and we we're at the house and they had a, a, de- a second level deck. It was a very tall deck. So there's a very long staircase to go up to this deck. And they brought the stump up to the top. And we're all playing. And some guy is trying to like, you know, do a flush it in one try. He's uh, doing some practice swings. Like he's, he's really going to do it. And he puts it down and he's, he brings it all the way behind his head. And he throws it down as hard as he can, misses the stump completely, hits his own knee, falls backwards down all the steps to the bottom, hitting his head on like every railing on the stairs. There were a lot of accidental deaths uh, in Mankato <laughs> when I was in college. Yeah. We didn't we didn't play that game in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> we played stickball <laughs> in the alley. We drank seltzer. We played drink the beer. That's what we played. Yeah, drink the beer. <laughs> we just drink. I mean? We just get a Milwaukee, old Milwaukee, and we drink. You know? That's what we fucking did. That's all we ever fucking did. I noticed in the in Out for Justice, like how easily Steven Seagal just dispatches of pretty much everybody he fights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's very little resistance. It's it's kind of the conceit of martial arts cinema because most of the time it's small guys beating up big guys yeah you know jackie chan versus a big wrestler or um you know somebody versus bolo or stallone versus thunder lips yes exactly (laughs) it's always the little guy versus the big guy because that's the whole often the point of the asian martial arts is you know a small guy can overtake a huge guy so it's the goal it's a complete 
bizarro world because it's this big guy throwing around little guys and just like jason in a friday the 13th film or something it's just he's like a monster um i remember it was a unique thing and marked for death because the villain uh the drug dealer Screwface, actually got a lot of shots on seagal and uh patrice o'neill the late patrice o'neill did a great routine about how the brothers were all scared because seagal actually got tagged and marked for death like oh you got some shots on him you know <laughs> well uh i guess and seagal's just beating him with wax on wax off like that's his whole <laughs> yeah, thing yeah well he's <laughs> he, he did they did get some big dudes for him to fight in this one because most stunt guys are little anyway but they did get some guys who look like they probably moonlighted as wrestlers and <laughs> something you know some decent decent sized guys but you know well i think that'll uh, lead nicely into uh, a couple of stories i need you to clarify for us sure. infamous steven seagal stories now um i've heard so many different variations of the gene labelle story yeah and i even heard one the other day that viking samurai was talking about he's commenting on another podcast that freddie prince jr was on right because apparently gene labelle is freddie prince jr's uncle and he talks about how that he remembers the day Gene came home from the set when he had this when he had this fight with Seagal. Yeah. LaBelle was pissed off because Seagal was tagging his stunt guys. And the way Freddie Prince Jr. told the story, it was that he said it was on under siege. From what I know, it was not on the under siege, it was on the Mark for Death set, correct? I I heard yeah, it was a Mark for Death set. I first heard about that story. Um because if you go to Wikipedia, it says for out for uh, out for justice, it says it happened on this set, on Wikipedia. Yeah, the um, around the time Out for Justice was released, maybe a couple of months after, um, I'm pretty sure it was 1991. Uh, the Star Magazine, the tabloid uh, competitor to the National Enquirer, and what else are you going to believe, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they ran a little item that Steven Seagal was all excited doing a fight scene which already sounds like baloney and a little old man stepped up from and said he would take on anybody on the set and already we're hitting bullshit world mm -hmm. um a little old man stepped out from the stunt crew and says i'll take you on and knocked him out and seagal was humbled or something like that and that's where it, it actually started you know as far as anybody in the public hearing something of that sort but uh and over the years it's Grown in legend, I heard one version of the story alleged from Gene LaBelle's lawyer, who was a uh, like a Pilates client of a friend of mine who was working in L.A. at a, at a <laughs> Windsor Pilates club. And he said what happened was um, Seagal was acting like he was unbeatable on the set or good. We're talking bullshit. And um, LaBelle came out from a group of stuntmen and said, uh, I had a black belt in Aikido when you were shitting in your diapers or something and little bell knocked him out and Seagal relieved himself or whatever. The he hell. shit himself or he pissed he himself. Shit himself. He pissed himself. He vomited himself. It, it goes on. It went to such crazy exaggerations. Eventually you got the versions that were told on the Joe Rogan show multiple mm -hmm. times. Joe Rogan suddenly acting like that made Seagal have no credibility. Although there was a clip from a UFC card where Joe Rogan was interviewing Seagal and he's visibly shaking, <laughs> trembling while he's interviewing Seagal. Seagal's huge. And yeah. Rogan is like a dwarf. And so <laughs> yeah. like, Seagal's like, hey, Joe, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you 
you're not from the neighborhood. <laughs> One martial like, yeah. artist to another, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Rogan looked terrified. You know, so <laughs> much. I, guess, I guess all those years of rolling in uh, Eddie Bravo's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu club didn't really matter. Um, just, he didn't have any confidence around Seagal. But um, the different stories were told. But then uh, a few years ago, Stephen Lambert wrote a book where he said he witnessed the whole event. It wasn't what it's been described. And he explained why the stuntmen have exaggerated. He said all it was was they were basically, uh, LaBelle was on the mark for death set, loaning them some sort of vehicle to do a camera, a certain type of yeah, ATV. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Use it, it for a, a tax write-off because it was used in a film so he could write it off. Right, right. And then he, uh, he and Seagal had a little basically like you know a, a uh, grappling sparring session or something saying i you know I, you can't get out of this move and seagal hits labelle in the groin or something or they both fall back or something like that and then labelle's like i'm gonna show you how to get out of it it was just one of those messy things that like two experienced martial artists are going to get into it and according to lambert it didn't make either one of them look good and seagal's bodyguards were right there and they were about to move in and remove labelle from seagal but seagal signaled to him no, don't worry about it we're just you know, we're just wrestling, you know, it's just a judo session or whatever the hell. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then uh, a production guy, uh, the Viking Samurai talked to like a month later, said that that wasn't even the story. It was similar to what Lambert said, but he explained the reasons why LaBelle was there. And he had a slightly different version, but I kind of think the versions those two guys told were the most accurate that I've heard because they sound the most believable. Mm-hmm. Like the other versions don't make any actual sense if you know how things are run on a movie set. And um, and I think that's what really happened. And yeah, LaBelle's kind of, um, there's a bit, I mean, he's a, he worked as a pro wrestler. His mom ran the wrestling promotion in Los Angeles. Like that was the <laughs> LaBelle's wrestling promotion. So there's a, there's a carny aspect to Gene LaBelle. And he's going to tell exaggerated stories and run with it. And a lot of stunt guys don't like Seagal. And <clears throat> I think it's well known. And I think early on, apparently he was pretty good with the stuntman, but then later on he was just, you know, detestable. He was he pissed everybody off years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly LeBrock, who he was married to for in his early days, she said her husband fell victim to Hollywood, where he was a nice guy when they married, and Hollywood turned him into a monster, mm-hmm. and that led to their divorce. And said it just you're surrounded by people who never tell you no, and screws with your ego, and you just you know. Who knows? Yeah, I watched a Viking Samurai clip where he's talking with, it was a stunt coordinator. I believe his name is Pomisano. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's him. That's him. Because um, he talked about too, how it was just like two martial arts, martial artists just kind of exchanging notes, just like feeling each other out, having fun. Yeah. Just showing each other things. Made it sound very innocent, which is kind of what Lambert's saying. Um, so you got Freddie Prince Jr. saying otherwise. It was an under siege, you know. Other people say it was on Out for Justice. Yeah. Did LaBelle work in any other films with his? No, he's not credited with working on Under Siege or Out for Justice. So okay. and, and I, he doesn't appear. I could spot him right away in any of these films. Like you could always tell it's LaBelle because, like, oh, wait, there's UOG LaBelle. He's about to do a tumble. Yep. <laughs> John Saxon just punched him. Uh, Jim Brown just <laughs> threw him over that way. <laughs> IMDb does list Gene LaBelle as uh, uncredited for stunts in Out for Justice. Mm. But uh, I don't know it is what IMDb. capacity he would have been in there. Yeah, I just, I didn't. I don't see him anywhere in it. And IMDb credits are not 
accurate. I mean, they're they're pretty laughable at some point. Especially if he's uncredited. Exactly. I mean, there's there's no way to prove that. It's like LaBelle would be listed on the stunt crew. There's no reason he wouldn't be. He's in the he's in the union and everything. They would have to list him. Well, I mean, he's got to be a pretty big name in the industry too, right? He's very famous. He he taught a lot of people judo and um, did a lot of stunt choreography. I I watched The Jerk a couple of months ago, and there's a scene where Steve Martin has like a karate fight with a bunch of mafia fighters with Iron Balls McGinty. Yeah, yeah, and then Bell's <laughs> right there getting knocked into the swimming pool. Oh, okay, that's it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he gets eaten because I saw Gene LaBelle and I went, okay, he's going to probably take a big fall into the pool. And sure enough, because that's his specialty, you know. How could he have known that I was Iron Balls McGinty? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you know, Freddie Prince Jr. wrote for the WWE for like five years, too. So, (laughs) I mean, and the last I heard is he's trying to start his own pro wrestling promotion in Los Angeles. So, I mean, take that for what it is, too. Like, he hasn't been acting for a long time, but like, he's been involved in pro wrestling for quite a bit. His uh, father's karate teacher, and I believe his karate teacher was Bob Wall. So the okay. leader of the Dirty Do- Wall's Dirty Dozen, which was guys <laughs> like, uh, I don't have a list in front of me or anything, but it was like Biddy Urquidez and Richard yep. Norton. The, the Jet. Yeah, and a lot of those guys years later, uh, from what I understand, like maybe a year later, they were mad at Bob Wall. Because they said they just did that photo session for Black Belt Magazine, not knowing why they were doing it. And then later they see this cover, you know, Bob Wall's Dirty Dozen. And I think some of them thought it cost them stunt work and choreography work in the industry. Because, you know, appearing on a magazine and yeah. challenging this actor who makes millions for Warner Brothers and other studios. It's just like, you know, it didn't it didn't do much for their careers. So obviously with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out, people discussing if Bruce Lee was tagging Stuntman or what have you. Yeah. Steven Seagal, it's no question, right? He was known to be tagging Stuntman even from early on, or is it just something that gradually got worse? Well, like I talked, I explained it on the the MMC episode we did about Above the Law and Lethal Weapon. And um, it's Bill Rasaki had told me that he worked on the set of Above the Law and he said Seagal was not getting along with Mickey Gilbert, who was a famous uh, stunt coordinator. And Mickey, have you ever seen Kolchak the Night Stalker, the old TV show? Uh, no. Okay. Well, if you ever do watch it, and for your listeners, if they know the first episode where there's a Jack the Ripper who's like invincible and throwing cops around and stuff, this sounds so dumb when you describe it. <laughs> but he's played by Mickey Gilbert because Mickey Gilbert could was tall could play the role and could do all these dives and jumps that they have the ripper doing but mickey gilbert was the stunt coordinator on above the law he did not understand what seagal was trying to do with the fight scenes because as stephen lambert said most stuntmen don't know anything about martial arts and you know they know there's karate and there's kung fu and punches and kicks and that's really it so seagal's doing aikido and aki jujitsu or whatever that's looks quite different from anything that had been done in on film at the time with these grappling moves and everything and obviously they were going to have to do it in editing like lots of quick cuts because it's hard to make that look exciting that's why you haven't seen a brazilian jujitsu action movie it's very hard to make that style as effective as it is in real life look good on camera in a movie it's really tough because it's like how do you pace how do you edit this to make it suspenseful and According to Ryosaki, he said Mickey Gilbert didn't like working with Seagal 
and they were filming fight scenes uh, without Seagal's knowledge with a Seagal double to put into the film because executives were worried that the fight scenes were going to look bad. They didn't like the dailies they'd seen or something. So I guess they were filming like with a Seagal double doing spin kicks or something. I have no idea. And um, but Seagal had spied on him, found out about it and removed those those stuntmen from the film. And um, I noticed there was an interview with Seagal where he talked about he did not get along with Mickey Gilbert, this uh, stunt coordinator on Above the Law, because Mickey's experience was falling off horses and car chases. And that's all he knew. And he didn't understand what he was trying to do with the film. And maybe there's something to that. And um, but then there was that guy who talked to Viking Samurai. Uh, that that uh, the guy with the Italian name, Pomisano. Yeah, yeah. They, he was saying that Seagal wouldn't go to the set to do that butcher shop fight scene until the set was totally padded for the stuntmen, so mm-hmm. they wouldn't get hurt. Mm-hmm. So now you didn't hear any stories about him like that years later, like on the set of Exit Wounds. He was known for <laughs> kicking people in the groin and Glimmer Man. Um, yeah, Glimmer Man. He had problems. So I don't know what happened to the guy after that. Maybe could be cocaine could be a lot of stuff because he was said to have had a cocaine addiction at one point oh really seagal cocaine addiction mm-hmm. hmm. yeah wow. there was a spy magazine article around the time of under the Siege. fattest cocaine addict i've ever seen <laughs> it, absolutely <laughs> um maybe he was trying to do it to lose weight it was backfiring because he'd go to the italian buffet <laughs> Man, so i'm really not really suppressing my appetite he was just getting into character for all for justice yeah exactly <laughs> but um Obviously, he was a pretty nasty person to work with later on, and and nobody wanted to work with him. So, um, I mean, that's why he makes a lot of his movies, you know, even before he uh, kind of went to Russia and became a citizen there, which from my, my understanding of somebody who knows him is actually because of tax issues. Mm-hmm. If he comes back here, he's got to pay a big tax bill. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he stays in Russia, me. he doesn't have to, and he doesn't care. So he doesn't care to return. So, I, you know, I've heard a claim he left, you know, because of all the accusations that started coming out, you know, about him and sexual assault and all this stuff, you know, yeah. he started making up lies about me. So I left. Yeah. Why would I stay? I did kind of agree with his statement. America, it's a land of the mouth. And I, yeah. I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really yeah. disagree with him on that. You know, yeah, he's got a good as repulsive point as he can be. It's true. You know, but like, if, if you're in his situation, why would you leave Russia? Like, He's boys with Putin. Putin just uh, loves him. He gets to live the high life, you know, on the government dime. Yeah. You know, it's it's just the lap of luxury for him. Yeah, he goes and teaches Arab sheiks in Abu Dhabi for some lunch money. And... <laughs> gets to wear his silk, his silk kimonos and uh, his yellow tinted glasses and, <laughs> which, <laughs> and his do-rag. The video I posted in the MMC Facebook page where he's he spends that day with that uh, karate nerd dude. Yeah. Oh, it was so funny after he's doing all these demonstrations. There's like two days of demonstrations, basically. And he takes breaks every 20 minutes. He's like, all right, let's take a break. (laughs) He's got no no endurance, no cardio. I'm just like flipping people or just, you know, push them to the ground, you know. He's like, all right, let's take a break. (laughs) World's most dangerous uh, couch potato. Yeah, I want to just go play some Mario Kart. Ugh. It also kind of leads into the, the next big story that I need clarification on. So, I mean, it seems like he doesn't get along with anyone. Um, even the John, uh, sorry, John Flynn uh, for this film, the director of this film says they didn't get along. He would always show up late to set, usually about an hour late, causing all kinds of delays all the time. But it's like everyone else in martial arts 
I mean, I have a very elementary knowledge of martial arts and the actors involved. Right. But like I've heard, you know, I know Michael Jai White. I know Jean-Claude Van Damme. All the all these people. And it seems like everyone hates Seagal and Seagal hates all of them. Every interview I've seen him with, you know, that funny one with Vlad. Can I laugh in your face when he says that uh, he's asking him who's a tough guy, who's a good martial artist? You know, who would who would you if there's a street fight, who would you want in your corner? Who in Hollywood can handle themselves? And he offers up Michael Jai White and Seagal says, can I laugh in your face? You know, he's not a martial artist. And Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, there was that funny interview on Arsenio. He's asking him about his contemporaries and Van Damme. He was a kickboxing champion, right? And Seagal says, well, the, uh, him being a champion of anything is a matter of opinion. <laughs> a lot of people have told me that that's not true. And, and uh, Vlad asked him about Chuck Norris and he said, well, Ch- Chuck's in his mid seventies, you know? And so he didn't really answer the question, you know, like right. Chuck was or not, but so like, why does everyone hate Seagal or bone to pick with him? And why does he hate everyone else? Um, my theory was a lot of those guys like Norris and um, Joe Lewis, Michael J. White, they came out of the sport karate scene, which like in the seventies and eighties uh, karate, which was taught as self, you know, it's supposed to be self-defense. It's not like a sport thing. They turned, they created sport karate in the late sixties. I think kind of a spinoff from the, um, the tournament scene because uh, they started wearing those foam pads that you see in the seventies and eighties footage or photos. And uh, which having fought in those tournaments when I was a kid, I can tell you, and done sparring sessions in the karate classes I took, those foam pads suck. They actually <laughs> hurt like hell to get hit by. There is no, the only thing it protects is your knuckles and your feet when you hit somebody. It actually makes the punch and the kick worse than it would be if you were bare knuckled and barefooted. I'm serious. Hmm. Because you're being hit with this massive thing of foam and it affected everybody's technique. Suddenly, nobody's doing techniques they're not doing the the type of moves they would do like in a real fight or a street fight self-defense situation uh they're fighting like bad kickboxing and that's why the gracies did the ufc because they knew they could bring any karate guy in there they were going to take him down and you know submit him or choke him out because it was just like karate had been watered down in taekwondo and and all that stuff all those guys like joe lewis chuck norris uh, Benny Urquidez, they came out. Well, Benny Urquidez was a kickboxer, so was Joe Lewis. Chuck Norris was not. He was a karate tournament champ. Uh, they came out of the sport karate scene, and everybody in LA was part of that. Don the Dragon Wilson was a kickboxer. It started in the karate tournaments and everything. These guys, they get into the movies. It's based on credentials. Um, you walk into any karate school back in the 80s, the owner would have a bunch of trophies in his window. That was kind of a a typical look of a karate school like suddenly these these tournament victories were proof of how good you were which is pretty funny if you've ever been to a tournament they're pretty laughable although you'd see some good fights every now and then but um Seagal didn't come from that Seagal came from I you know did demos at the deer park I was a black belt with Fumio Demura didn't fight in tournaments I went to Japan I did the real stuff I was in the Naikido dojo he claims to have fought the Yakuza every day. I mean, who knows what's real about that? Hmm. Uh, I was told by the Aikido guy who knew some people who trained with him. He said that that is a real possibility over in Japan with Yakuza guys coming in and starting trouble. Hmm. Um, so he, he said it may have happened. It's certainly not impossible and not unlikely. 
so Seagal comes from that kind of self-defense, very Japan-oriented martial arts world. And he gets into a major studio film right away. Above the Law is a major studio production. It's Warner Brothers. Chuck Norris toiled an independent film for a few years before he got any sort of major studio deal. Um, Joe Lewis started out with AIP, I think, financing Jaguar Lives. Mm. And then he did, which flopped. And then he did a movie for American Cinema that flopped. And he was kind of finished. These other guys, Michael Jai White, all of them, they kind of started in low budget films and had to work their way up. So Seagal starts right out of the gate getting a Warner Brothers film. And with, you know, a major studio behind him and a big budget and good directors and everything. And I, in every film he did after that, there was a, you know, they had real directors. He wasn't working for Roger Corman. <laughs> so I think there was a, there was an element of jealousy there. Van Damme too. Van Damme started out with the indies and did a lot of independent films before mm-hmm. he got his uh, deal with Sony and then Universal. So it's an industry jealousy thing. I'm sure Seagal rubs people the wrong way. He, he definitely seems like the type. Um, uh, a lot of these other, these LA martial arts guys are really nice when you meet them. They're very, they seem kind of humble, I guess, or whatever. And it's just, it's a different mentality. It's just that bad mix of mentality and Hollywood ego and, you know, people who didn't make it as big. Um, the irony is, of course, Seagal ended up working for all the indies in the 21st century. Yeah. And all these other guys have probably done more major studio work since. So, you know, Chuck Norris had a successful show on CBS television. I don't think you could be more successful than that, really. If you have a long running show that's in the top 20 for like 10 years and it runs on the Hallmark Channel every day, you're you're getting royalty checks right away. CMT when it was in its heyday. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And yeah, he gets a paycheck every time that airs, probably. Yeah. And every time it airs, there's Bullflex commercials in the middle of them. Total oh, gym. yeah. The, well, total Gym. The Total, total gym. gym. Sorry. Yeah. Total gym, that's what he does. I actually have a Total Gym in my uh, oh, basement. Perfect. It's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about it a couple of months ago. I said that really the smartest, most successful martial artist of the last 40 years in America was Billy Blanks. Because mm-hmm. Billy Blanks was a tournament champ who became a personal trainer in Hollywood did some low budget martial arts movies in Canada. Like I think one's called Talons of the Eagle. I did a movie with Roddy Piper. That's actually not that bad. Mm. King of the kickboxers. But then he comes up with Tybo, which he was trying to get off the ground for years. <laughs> He's probably made $200 million off that, that damn thing. Mm. It's just karate aerobics. Yeah. So good for him. He's the smartest karate man ever. It's like you follow that made- 80s jazzercise or, you know, the, the physical fad and followed all the way through the late nineties. Yeah, he he uh, he he did it. He uh, that's the most successful martial artist of all time, probably more successful than Bruce Lee, who never even got to enjoy his millions that his his face generated. You know, it's like it jumped from like Suzanne Summers to like Kathy Ireland and then Billy Blanks. <laughs> it's funny because I tried some of those Tybo exercises um, when I was kind of single and broke, and uh, and I needed some to work out. And I mm-hmm. couldn't afford to join a school or anything or join a gym. And I did them and I kind of understood the routines and stuff. And they'll get you sweating. They, they, they'll kick your ass, especially if you're yeah. out of shape. Mm-hmm. I was taking Kung Fu for a couple of years from this guy. One of the classes, I think he was just bored and didn't want to come up with anything. So he gave me this workout routine. I recognize this typo like after the <laughs> after six exercise. I said, I can't believe this. This guy claims he's, his lineage goes to Beijing and back, you know. He's, <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> really blanks. Yeah. Um, so the story with uh I think a lot of people confuse the Van Damme story with LaBelle saying, like, oh yeah, uh, Van Damme choked out Seagal and he shit himself. Yeah. So this is at a, a party at Sylvester Stallone's house. Yes. Stallone's description was Van Damme went up to Seagal, said, You're talking shit about me. Let's take it outside and 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 you know, let's talk, let's fight, let's fight about this right now. And Seagal refused to walk outside with him and nothing happened. Or Seagal left the party. I think that was still in the description. Nothing happened. You know, Van Damme's never been known to kick anybody's ass. Like Chuck Zito, that biker beat the hell out of him in a New York club or something. A New York oh, really? Club. Oh, yeah. Van Damme has had more problems with cocaine than probably any actor in Hollywood. Mm. Wow. Oh, and also Van Damme, he was right about the Van Damme and not being a kickboxer or champ. Van Damme fought in like karate tournaments. I think somebody actually did some digging and I don't think he ever fought a single kickboxing fight. Okay, well, was he a champion in anything? I think he won, like, his division. Like, in karate tournaments, you're in belt divisions and age divisions. And okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, I won my division when I was 16. It's real all-valley-ish, is what you're saying? It, yes. <laughs> they got a women's division now. <laughs> Those movies, uh, that Cobra Kai series, cracked me up because they have karate schools as these profitable businesses that are kind of <laughs> I was like, do you know how tough it is to keep a karate school open? <laughs> Even Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools don't do so great these days. So yeah. it's laughable. It's just like the business isn't like that. And people are not, kids are, are not growing up with this idea they need to defend themselves all the time, which is unfortunate, but we have a very physically passive society nowadays. Well, like karate was super popular in the early 90s, but like, you know. For the last 25 years, it hasn't been. Krav Maga. Yep. So everybody takes Israeli fighting arts, which I think is a little bit of a hoax, but whatever. It seems like Taekwondo has staying power. Yeah, because I got in the Olympics. That helped. Going to the Olympics helped a bit. I think that's what most of the, the actual like karate schools and, and towns were. It was, it was actually Taekwondo. But yeah, they like, used to call it, like, nobody call it Korean Karate. Yeah, nobody knows the difference. Everything is karate. Right. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Yeah. Well, Taekwondo <laughs> was really widespread in North America in the 70s because the South Korean government offered to pay for these uh, Taekwondo teachers to come to America and, and open up Taekwondo schools. And they would give them like fourth degree, fifth degree black belts that there's no way in hell by the standards of those schools they could have earned within the, the time and existence of Taekwondo which there wasn't a, a dojo of Taekwondo probably until 1948. So by 1971, you had these fifth degree black belts and sixth degree black belt Koreans coming over and opening schools. And it was kind of, there's a, there's a fraudulent element to it, put it that mm -hmm. way. But it was the South Korean government supposedly financed them so it would spread Korean culture. So how else do you infiltrate by other than teaching kids how to kill with a, you know, a kick to the head or something. When I was in college, uh, I had a I had a night class one semester and I'd cut through the gym, like the mezzanine of the, the gymnasium. And the, they had a room with, a, I think it was a Taekwondo class. And the instructor was just like a, a chubby middle-aged Jewish looking guy with like curly hair and glasses. <laughs> <laughs> like, who, who is taking martial arts from this guy? <laughs> 
like i hope you didn't pay for this <laughs> yeah ron ron van cleef had a uh, a pretty good joke where he said if you're calling yourself a bastard and you look down and can't see your shoes you might want to reconsider your profession <laughs> you know which I, I do agree with him on that i i took a shotokan class when i was young because we moved to a town where that was about the only karate available and the teacher was fat and didn't even put on his gi He's just kind of walking around in blue jeans, <laughs> cowboy boots, and correcting people's postures and stuff. And it didn't really, didn't really click with me. It's like you know, wearing American flag pants. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Strangely <laughs> enough, it's funny because I looked up what happened to him, and um, he had left his wife for another woman and uh, was teaching Shotokan at a church in a nearby town, and was calling it something like Karate for Christ or something. <laughs> <laughs> and i was just absolutely baffled and you know whatever it's like there was a reason i didn't really take with it so uh i, I don't th- i think back in the 60s karate was so widespread that anybody could get a black belt if they just paid an instructor or something i mean i'm not saying there wasn't good instruction because i'm sure there was plenty of good instruction but some of the stuff was a little shady and how dedicated people were to such things i think supposedly bruce lee used to make fun of the the fat karate instructors and he had every right to well i'm sure a lot of those programs it's just like you know we have a we have a six-week program and if you make it to the end we'll make you a a black belt you know or something like that or yeah that's one thing i like what the brazilians did with brazilian jiu-jitsu is uh the standard for a black belt i think it takes at least 10 years to get a black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu or bjj and uh they kind of brought that that standard back although I, from what i've heard that's starting to get murky now that's starting to get watered down so whatever yeah well i'm thinking too some of these stories like i i just imagine like uh jean-claude van damme and his karate tournaments uh, looking like kramer on seinfeld taking karate <laughs> with the little kids <laughs> Well, I saw some of the pics and it's like he had thick Coke bottle glasses and he had like a bowl cut. He didn't look anything like the Van Damme he became, you know, mm-hmm. well, it didn't That's look funny. like the lady killer or, uh, or Seagal. You mentioned him fighting the, uh, the Yakuza at his uh, dojo. And I'm just thinking that's just like Henzo Gracie, 400 and oh, in the gym, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> undefeated in the gym <laughs> like he claims he has a 400 and 0 record but there's no record of of him actually fighting anybody yeah. and there's no footage and it's it's just him lining up a bunch of schmoes you know in, the, in his dojo chokes about demonstrating on him okay that's one of my victories write it down <laughs> i guess to bring it back to seagal and out for justice it's far more evident in clips i've seen of his most recent work but why does Seagal always hold guns so weird? He looks so uncomfortable holding them. Because he doesn't need a gun. <laughs> and he runs weird too. Like his almost like a little like his arms are kind of flailing around. Oh, he runs, he runs very busy. You can tell he never jogs because he <laughs> he runs worse than Roger Moore. Like he hates running. <laughs> he calls it running and shit. I don't like that. He's got this strange posture where like he his he, he puts his chest out he's got a very straight back and his, his chest is pushed push out but like i i don't know like and then his his uh his legs are just uh you know there like straight he's straight legged the entire time 
And uh, like I mentioned earlier, very little movement from the waist down. So, and even like his, his whole torso doesn't move either. It's all arms. So like <laughs> yeah. any, any movement beyond that looks very awkward. He refused the services of Body by Jake in the 80s. Here's the problem. Jake Steinfeld never made it to the Seagal Mansion. There's a name I haven't heard in forever. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Since you watched I Love the 80s in 1999, Brett? <laughs> Body by Jake was huge in the 90s. Yeah, he was pretty big. He used to advertise all the time. Yeah, the, um, the way he holds a gun is actually quite accurate. It just looks weird because he's such a big dude holding a little gun. It just <laughs> bizarre. But his well, gun tactics are, I'm told, are, are actually very, very true. That's legit. You know, the way actors hold guns in movies, they very rarely hold them correctly or or in the right posture. And uh, the way Seagal does it is actually quite accurate. Well, in all those sniper films that he's done more recently, he's yeah. always holding these automatic, like these big, you know, AR-15 types with the big butts. He has the butt sticking out and he's holding it kind of diagonal. And it's like, you shoot that gun. It's going to, it's going to kick back into that direction. He's got, he never has the butt in his shoulder at all. He's never bracing himself. He always holds it out. Awkward. I wonder if they're using like, they might be using weird prop guns on those sets. You know, it could be, they may not even be using accurate firearms. I don't know. I haven't seen them. So I don't, I haven't Mm. seen this stuff. I know if you're talking about the ones where he's wearing a do rag, um, yeah like, like he's in those, two speci- life crew. those specifically yes yes okay he's wearing like the do-rag like two life crew style um i i didn't notice but I don't, i've only seen like maybe two of those i saw one with like steve austin was in it or something i don't know it, yeah. it all blurs in my memory well well seagal he was a legit sheriff's deputy yeah that's right. <laughs> so he, he was he should know how to use firearms mm-hmm. yeah and i'm sure he does parish deputy <laughs> whatever yeah it's louisiana <laughs> they go by old napoleon law <laughs> parish well they don't they don't have sheriffs there he's, he's the sheriff well, no they have deputy. sheriffs i'm just saying is a no i wasn't disagreeing with anything you said i was just saying yeah he's a sheriff's or a parish sheriff's deputy oh i see yeah they don't have counties in yeah. Louisiana. yeah parishes i did like in an out for justice whenever his uh, his opponents would run out of ammo or be disarmed he would empty his uh his gun and uh just discard it and uh go hand to hand it's kind of disappointing that you know at the end he's got to fight bill forsyth who's <laughs> you know it's not even going to be a challenge and, you... and it's not <laughs> it's not <laughs> a challenge it's the most one-sided fight in the whole movie <laughs> he beats him in about a minute i mean he is a it, drug addict i get it but it only takes a while because uh Richie is so coked out of his mind he, he can't be uh, injured. It's like Scarface, you know. Yeah, it's like Scarface. Things like a million bullets to take him down. <laughs> <laughs> well, the um the bar fight scene, which is uh, supposedly is Seagal's favorite fight scene he's ever done, I guess because he gets to look like a swaggering bully through the whole sequence with the cue balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, cue the cue ball and the rag. Yeah, yeah. Hey, 
You were still sucking your thumb when your brother was around town sucking dicks. But just the same, you shouldn't talk so tough, all right? If my brother was here, you wouldn't talk shit like that. Yeah, but he's not here. And you know why he's not here? Why? Because he's a chicken shit fucking pussy asshole, you know? Hey, don't go pushing my patrons around, you prick, you prick. Look around you over here. Is this the setting for profanity? Hey, fuck you. Benny the book, how are you, buddy? Huh? Benny, you won't be over here using my bell for, like, illegal means, would you? Bookmakers in illegal activity, you know? You also would not know that uh, Richie owns this place and that he sells narcotics here because he's a fucking puke and he likes to pervert kids and stuff, huh? Drugs. Nobody uses drugs around here. Yeah. You don't know nothing, do you? Thank you for that, though, huh? Anybody seen Richie? Fuck you. Anybody know why Richie did Bobby Lupo? There's a scene where he goes and confronts that bartender and asks him if he's a tough guy or he's a <laughs> boxer, you know. Um, that bartender was played by Nick Dimitri, who's an old stunt pro. Um, if you've seen the Bronson movie Hard Times, Nick Dimitri is the tough, like, boxer they bring in in the finale to, to, uh, to defeat Bronson. Another episode he did semi-recently, right? I don't think we've done Hard Times. You didn't do Hard Times? No, we'd have to we'd have to bring in uh, Zaldiver, or we'd have to bring in Paul Talbot to talk about that. I swear, I thought you talked about Hard Times recently. We've talked about it, I'm sure, because it's, I, I love the film a lot, and I recently mm-hmm. showed it to my kid. I said, "This is how you need to act at school." Nobody <laughs> with you. But uh, <laughs> two men enter, one man leave. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but uh, no, I really dig the film, but. Um, but yeah, Nick Dimitri, I recognize as, as he's the, you a boxer? Yeah, I boxed a little, you know. <laughs> knocks him out. That actually has a, a great, one great uh, Seagal hammy line where um, he asked him, he shoots the gun in the ceiling. He said, did you know if he, you check and see if anybody's up there? And he goes, I don't remember. He like looks away for a minute. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good moment. Like that seems yeah. fun. <laughs> I may have to get the Blu-ray to replace my terrible Snapcase DVD just yep. to relive that scene. You gotta get it to to see all those teeth fly out of that guy's mouth in real time, you know. Yeah, and maybe the sound is better on the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Maybe there they some, brought the sound effects back. There are some other good lines in that that pool hall scene. Uh, he tells uh, Richie's brother, "You were still sucking your thumb while your brother was around town sucking dicks." <laughs> <laughs> And then Richie's sister was a hooker, apparently, the Gina Carano yep. character. Yeah, because he arrests her because he thinks that's going to bring Richie out of hiding. I feel bad about Bobby. Yeah. You don't know what reason your brother might have. Gino, even if I knew, which I don't. And I'm sure you haven't seen your brother, right? Last time was a couple of days ago. Well, he's always with a different who. Who's his latest special? <laughs> Since when does a sister keep track of a brother's pumps? Yeah, it must be tough, huh? Who's this one over here? Which one? The one with the nipples you could dial a phone with. Oh, Terry. Why? Look, let's cut the bullshit. I gotta talk to you. Come over here. Gee, oh, would you get your fucking hands off me? Don't push me around in my club, Gino. Gee. Hey, what the fuck you think you're doing? Huh? Didn't I tell you? Get the fuck out of here. Oh, oh my God. God. What are you getting your rocks off this way? Is this what they teach you how to do when you're in a cop? Shit. Oh. You seen your brother anywhere? No, Gino. I haven't. I've told you a million times. What the flying fuck you think you're doing? 
seen your brother anywhere. What are you, stupid? I already told you no. Why did you just destroy my whole office? Please. Sorry. No, if you're looking for my lipstick, it's in my bag. He talks to his dad, you know, Junior Soprano and his wife, who are just, you know, good, good, uh, good Italian Catholics go home every yeah. night and he treated me like a bunch of horror crackhead kids. <laughs> he treated me like a father. Or, or he was like a father to me. So it hurts me. I got to arrest him for the night to get Richie out here. <laughs> it's like why he turned into the bully cop and then uh, the, the father's kids turned into these monsters. Who would ever have thought that I'd become a cop? I mean, from the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the other good line from the pool hall was, uh, "Tell your brother I'm going to cut off his head and piss down his throat." <laughs> <laughs> I miss those threats like that. Did Matt Damon ever say anything tough like that in the Bourne movies? No. So yeah, also there's a there's a scene where, so Richie's got a, himself a police scanner, mm. and uh, he raids. Uh, Gino's home to uh, try and kill him and his his wife and uh, kid. Although that was another thing I was a little confused about. With so I was like, okay, they're separated, they're getting a divorce. Okay, now they're the whole movie. They kind of seem pretty friendly. I know there's there's a lot of things going on. You know, things that make them stick together. Yeah, try and make the best of things and make another run at the marriage, maybe. But it was kind of jarring. Just how much like I did. <laughs> I mean, Brett brought up the uh, the dog things, but just a lot of stuff that just doesn't make necessarily make sense. Felt like it was padded for time, maybe yeah. create a little drama or conflict. But because he goes, he goes to visit his wife at the apartment, and before Richie and his crew show up, he tells this long story about his dad selling. Uh... Oh, what the hell Pencil was he selling? He was sharpening knives and pencils. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was sharpening uh, knives and scissors, and then everybody started buying cheap ones that they could just replace. And, uh, like, how, like, it was such a, just a terrible summer for him, and, like, he, he followed him around for two months, and it was just so depressing. And He was ringing the bell, and nobody came out to sharpen their knife. <laughs> and he just goes on and on and on about it. That bell it. was the loneliest sound they ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and earlier he, he meets with uh vittorio's guy frank and he tells him a story about his, his uncle pino uh put some guy in the trunk of the car and then they drove to the movies and uh, <laughs> hey you uncle get pino. the fuck out of here <laughs> <laughs> and uh gino was so worried about the guy in the trunk that he couldn't st- sit still for the movie so he had to go out there and and pino let him open the trunk and <laughs> oh gino Pino, right? Yeah, the big guy. One time, 
I was a kid. Pino was gonna like take me to the movies, right? Sunday matinee. Yeah. But first we go to the candy store. I met the Amazon 86. You remember the place? Who the hell can forget that place? We see this guy, he's filling up his pockets, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Pino grabs him by the throat, drags him outside, throws him a beat. Bing, bang, boom. Oh. <laughs> Puts him in the trunk of the car, drives to the movies with him in the trunk. You want to the movies? We're in the movies. I'm not watching. Well, I'm thinking to myself, well, what about this guy in the trunk, you know? <laughs> I think to myself, he killed him. <laughs> he's dead, right? He's dead. I run back around to Pino. I says, Pino, you killed the guy. Pino's bored. Brings me around the front, gives me the keys. He says, Gino, do what you got to do. I says, man, you're me. What am I going to do? I'm nine years old, right? So what you do? He gives me the keys. I open the trunk. I see this grown man staring at me. Mean, you must have been scared of shit. I got Pino over here. What are we scared of, right? <laughs> I says to the guy, hey, you, get the fuck out of here. Zoom. I blink. He's in Hoboken. No, he took off like a shot. Like a bird. Nine years old, you scared the shit out of him. <laughs> the son of a bitch. Nine years old. I'm looking at Pino and thinking to myself, my God, what a great guy. I always wanted to be a wise guy. Look at us now under God. Who would have ever thought that I would have become a cop, huh? Hey, Lucky, you know, three gods are puppeteer. And uh, we're just on the end of the strings. Yeah, but God has a strange sense of humor, you gotta admit. Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> The like, story what, had no, it made no sense at all. What does this have to do with anything? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that can uh, piggyback off of that to kind of start to wrap things up with Seagal. He's it's hard to he has a lot of charisma, I think. He has a great screen presence. Yeah. But he's not a great actor. No. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of his work especially post undersea. I remember like outside of like the past couple of weeks, like before a couple of weeks ago, under siege Two: dark territory was mm-hmm. the Steven Seagal film. I'd seen the most, right? I barely remembered any part of under siege. And I didn't see above the law. I liked that. So I finally saw this like this quite, a, I think Alfred justice might be my favorite of his so far. Uh-huh. Um, we had on daily ground on VHS <laughs> that was i mean it was fun for the time but it's terrible but yeah i never seen glimmer man or exit wounds or anything like that the patriot i'm very confused by the patriot i don't know what it is and i've never heard anyone talk about it it was uh it went straight to hbo okay really it was an independent production it went straight to hbo premiered on hbo it was a sign that it was over for him for theatrical releases, although Under Siege 2 and Glimmer Man did come out mm. in Exit Wounds. So he still had films to make for Warner Brothers, but um, he was starting to do straight-to-video stuff. Like, that was that was a preview of his future. Supposedly there's no... I've never seen The Patriot, but supposedly there's no fight scenes in the film. Mm. His Which, character in The Patriot is uh, Dr. Wesley McLaren. It's a very doctor. Russian-Jewish name, I think. Doctor. <laughs> He's a doctor, so... Yo, I learned how to sign in Latin. <laughs> I mean, the Prince guy talked about how he kind of burned his bridges with Warner Brothers. They offered him a, a seven-year deal, according to him, and Seagal turned it down for unknown reasons or just reasons nobody would understand. He said he was going to be too old by the end of it. And it's like, well, who the fuck cares? You're getting paid. He bet yeah. on himself and he lost. Yeah. 
And uh, apparently also, you know, in 96, Jim Carrey got paid 20 million to do Liar Liar. And that was the first actor who'd ever gotten 20 million for a film. He was getting 12 at the time. Most of all started asking for 20. <laughs> the studio said, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. From what I understand, the Seagal movies made for Warner Brothers in the late 80s, early 90s, were the most profitable films Warner Brothers made in mm. that time span. More profitable than Batman or, yeah, sure. or whatever. It's like they didn't cost much to make. They made, a, they made really good money in America. They made a fortune overseas. Like his stuff sold very well overseas. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Japan, Asia africa south america um in europe he did all right um his movies probably did well in russia that was starting to open up as a theatrical market they said that seagal kind of paved the way for all those guys like foreign the foreign box office if the studio stayed control of them usually okay in the old days the studio would just sell the rights to some foreign distributor and that they took care of the rest but this got to where warner brothers was very deeply involved with their foreign releases and getting stuff out and apparently the Sagal movies just made so much money because you don't it doesn't really matter how bad it's translated when people saw the violence they loved it you know in those countries so he uh apparently those things just made a friggin fortune overseas so he may have been justified in asking for 20 million in a way but they were like hey you know your your stuff does so great for us because it's cheap it doesn't cost us much so yeah right right it kind of also reminds me of uh, you guys were talking earlier about how <laughs> brushes his hair like a girl. He's got the ponytail. Yeah. In 98, have you seen the cinematic masterpiece that is My Giant with Billy Crystal? Never saw that. No. Seagal's in it as himself. Does has a cameo. Okay. And so the like the gist of the movie is Billy Crystal's a, a talent agent or a Hollywood agent. Stumbles upon uh, Max, who was a uh, George Mirasan NBA player at the time. You know, he's like seven foot, whatever. Seven foot seven. Seven seven. <laughs> he was like the tallest player in the history of the NBA. Yeah. And uh, he wants to, you know, put him in the movies. And then he has, uh, he has kind of an estranged son. And uh, there's a scene where he's kind of trying to make up with his son because his son, apparently his idol is Steven Seagal. So he puts him on the phone with Seagal. And it's Seagal supposedly on set somewhere. He's just like wearing like a like a kimono or a robe or something. And um, the kid, of course, doesn't believe it's Seagal. And he's like, well, tell him his ponytail's stupid. It you know, looks gay or so- it says something like that, you know, and Seagal's got to sit there and take it, you know, got to be a good sport about it. But that was 98. So that was probably about the time where it was like, you know, you're not getting your own shit anymore. You're not getting top dollar. Yeah, you got to take what you can get. Yeah, you're making fun of yourself in a. It's still a big studio film, but you're mocking you're yeah. yourself. And that was a bomb too, but you know, big studio film. Yeah, he was in the Onion movie um, because he did a Mountain Dew commercial or or something like after Jackie Chan did a, a Mountain Dew ad, and mm. Seagal did one, and Seagal was funny in the ad. And I guess David Zucker was producing the Onion movie and saw that ad and decided to bring Seagal into the Onion movie where he did the. The cock puncher fake movie trailer, something <laughs> like that. Um, I've never seen the entire film. I've just seen that that sketch, which was pretty funny. And uh, at the time, I think there was talk of, "Hey, let's put this guy in comedies." And uh, I noticed there's a lot of comedy in Exit Wounds, but the um, I think the Onion film was was shot but shelved for quite a few years. 
Mm-hmm. So apparently it was terrible. I've never, like I said, I've never seen the whole film. But um, but that Seagal cameo was probably filmed in 2099. I don't think the movie came out till 2004 or something like that. I mean, people could look that up. 2008. Jeez, like I think it was shelved for like half a decade or more. Wow. Um, I, I may have seen it, but it was many years ago if I did. I don't remember anything about it. Yeah, it was said to be pretty bad. Um, he probably should have done more comedies. Uh, he did some funny stuff in Exit Wounds. I thought he, he came off well doing that, but you know. Is he still doing the Cajun accent in Exit Wounds? Because Glimmer Man is where it's supposed... I haven't seen Glimmer Man, but I heard that's that's where the Cajun or like he starts uh, talking like a you know a black guy. Right, right. Um yeah, because Glimmer Man, I think, is about a voodoo killer or something. Well, I noticed he was doing the um he did the like the, the sort of Memphis Cajun accent or whatever the hell it was. Um he started doing that in his straight to video movies. He did one with like uh Lance Henriksen that was filmed in Connecticut, mm. and he's doing this this terrible southern accent, you know, though, yeah, that's what it'd be like, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's terrible, but uh, I think in Exit Wounds, he was doing like the Seagal, I'm a New Yorker, East Coast guy, even though he's from LA. He's doing mm-hmm. that voice. I was trying to think watching Out for Justice, who Seagal reminded me of. I was thinking he reminded me of a pro wrestler, but couldn't quite put my finger on it. Maybe maybe a little Razor Ramon. A little Possibly. bit, but, uh, but then I, I was thinking maybe, maybe he just reminds me of Will Sasso's impression of him. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> like maybe I'm just thinking of all the parodies I've seen. Of, of I can't Steven say it's Seagal. like Bruno San Martino or anything like that. Yeah. It was, yeah, it would have been somebody from around that time. Cause it his performance is very WWF early nineties. I'm surprised they didn't have a wrestler that ripped off his character from Out for Justice. Mm. I well, they've had a lot of Italian Guido type wrestlers, <laughs> uh, you know. They didn't have a Guido martial arts master who was like six four or something. <laughs> Why don't like they had uh, like the uh, like ECW had the full blooded Italians? That's true. And WCW had the uh, Mama Luke's, uh, <laughs> aka the Paisanos. That was a total Vince Russo creation because only somebody from New York would give a damn about that type of heel villain or or mid card character. Yeah, they were they were called the Paisanos, but the announcers like, oh, they're the Mama Luke's, you know. And it's like, yeah. oh, like then they would do that joke for like a year and a half, and like, nobody nobody fucking gets it. I don't understand. No, nobody understands it outside of New York, so I, I had no idea why they approve that sort of thing. But yeah, you know, WWE has a new uh, Italian mobster character. Uh, he's from Chicago though, but he's, oh. he, he's the Don of NXT. <laughs> should be the richie of you know nxt he wrestles in a wife beater and uh like <laughs> velour uh, sweatpants does he wear gold chains sometimes yeah okay rings you know rings on his finger he should have like a valet uh she, she comes out and removes like his gold chains and stuff and she's got like she's like a big haired brooklyn girl or something you know? they just brought in a couple more uh, members of the family to to back them up so they're do they have the terrible sketches they always do like they show them at home um, oh my god yeah like he goes to the restaurant and he's he's talking about how you know he helped the business out and blah 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 oh, god. and they you know to, to to send a message to his uh his arrival at the time he'll send a, a fish wrapped in newspaper 
because you know <laughs> sleeps with the fishes is a thing right. that happened in the godfather and he, he puts cement shoes in front of roman reigns <laughs> door or something <laughs> and people people don't understand the the sleeps with the fishes reference so they just think it means i'm gonna get you and we're gonna have a wrestling match yeah we don't really have uh we don't really have cultural literacy for that sort of thing these days but it's like the guys uh, that are writing that stuff who've been doing wrestling tv for 40 years now uh, and they're still doing stuff from 40 years ago (laughs) (laughs) it's actually going back it feels a lot like 1995 on nxt now oh god it's uh, like every every wrestler has a has a different job We got the garbage man, the librarian, <laughs> the the office temp. You know they have that. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about for uh, for justice? I mean, we talked most about uh, most everything. Got all the main uh, fight scenes out of the way. You know, at the end, of course, there's a big showdown. He gets tipped off to where he's hiding. He goes to see his. Uh, I don't know if she was a hooker or just a a casual fling that he saw on the side yeah they didn't really explain i uh, i couldn't tell if that was like the hookers from the beginning of the movie or if it was a different set of women when they tried to solicit seagal (laughs) it was like a hooker and her kid sister who was from the old country that she was teaching english to (laughs) yeah she was a former hooker who was going straight that's what it was she was richie's old pump yeah that's yeah. that's what I gathered from. I mean, it's obvious a lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor that might have explained a lot of that stuff. And then they uh, he he has a party. He, he brings yeah. all his crew in, and uh, they, they <laughs> he tells the girl to call her hooker friend. So uh, so uh, I don't know. So they could have a bunch of girls there, and then he goes smokes crack in the background. He could have done the smart thing and just driven to Philadelphia or well, Pittsburgh. <laughs> You know, just make a four or five hour drive to another state. He could avoid. He's not leaving the neighborhood. Yeah, (laughs) not. It's a magnet keeps them there. You know. Well, it's like he had a death wish. Like he, like he's like, uh, you know, I'm not going to survive the night, so fuck it. Yeah. You know, we're going to go all out. I like the the uh, the corkscrew uh, finish to their fight. To add insult to injury, it was even funnier than he blasted him with the shotgun, you know, so the, the mob guy could take the credit, you know, go home and tell him you got him, you know. <laughs> Shot him three times. <laughs> He's dead. Already dead. What's funny is the mob guy acts like another, what, the, what did you just do, Gino? <laughs> Why are you breaking my balls here? What are you talking about? Oh, it's like he just pulled your Glock and he shot him three times. Don't you see what happened? She's a dumb Guido. Gino's he... more violent than the mob. He is. He's worse. <laughs> he really is. Because Richie had already started war with the mob too. Uh, he had laid an ambush at his brother's bar and he killed like three or four mob guys. Yeah. So, yeah. He really did not give a fuck. He must have thought he was, like he said, the death wish, death wish aspect, but thought he could uh, take over the uh, the territory i guess not leaving the neighborhood it's my neighborhood i guess we didn't really uh, explain like why he shot bobby at the beginning it was yeah they were both banging the same chick and then like bobby was banging two other chicks besides oh, I, thought, um, 
I thought Bobby's wife had paid Richie to kill Bobby or, or no, was what she did was she showed him the picture, but okay. she didn't know that Richie would overreact and kill him. <laughs> she thought he would do the sensible thing to ask him, why are you sleeping with my girl? Yeah. 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 Cause it was Richie was fucking the girl that Bobby was fucking in the picture. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there was another waitress that Bobby was fucking. <laughs> Yeah, Shannon Worry, the, the nipples okay. you get down the phone with. Yeah. <laughs> Another great line. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. and then he went and killed the uh he killed the girl from the photo first, and then he went and killed Bobby. Right. And then he just went on a, a rampage. It's all that crack he was smoking in the montages. <laughs> I told you there's like five scenes of him smoking crack. <laughs> <laughs> the record breaker. It's more than bad lieutenant. <laughs> It's more than uh, uh, New Jack City. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like G Money didn't smoke that much crack. Jeez. I like the 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 coda at the end with uh, uh, Gino and Vic are back together having a, a date at the uh, the boardwalk, and he sees the uh, <laughs> the station wagon. Who is the bumper sticker on the station wagon? Tell them all. Let God sort them out. Yeah. <laughs> He knocks the guy out and uh, no, he kicks him in the balls and then the dog pisses on his face. Yeah. <laughs> he calls him uh, yo fuck nuts. <laughs> First <laughs> yeah. time I'd ever heard that as an insult. Yo fuck nuts. You talking to me? Yeah, you know, you wouldn't have to be the guy who uh, threw a puppy out of the window of this guy the other day. Yeah, what's your fucking business anyway? Of course, I'm an animal lover, you know. Animal lover? Yeah. Yeah. Look, asshole, you don't mind your fucking business or stuff. You're in a fucking plastic bag. So you are a fucking one. How's that? You're a tough guy, huh? Tough guy? I'll show you how fucking tough yeah, I am. My balls. My balls. But it's like like Gino just kind of went on his own rampage and he's just walking around free like you know it's just uh, his day off you know like not, doesn't have to do any paperwork or anything. He's like, he's like a big Guido monster. <laughs> so it's almost a kaiju in a way. It's like a kaiju in Brooklyn. It's <laughs> <laughs> like we need to make the Gino a little more likable, a little softer. What can we do? let's throw in the uh the whole dog subplot because <laughs> like everything they do with the dog is just like derails from the story just like yeah. it doesn't fit and there's so many other missing pieces and i know this uh supposedly takes place over over one evening there's a part in the middle where i was like okay now it's like a week later right <laughs> 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 and then at the end it's like nope nope still just one night yeah, Sagal's <laughs> already had like what two or three costume changes. You know, he's in the vest yeah. with the beret, and then he's not. And it seems like it gets you know dark, and then daylight again, almost, <laughs> and then dark again. I don't know, but it's very confusing. Forsyth makes it a point in the beginning to, you know, they break into that safe, tells all his thugs that uh, all that money's theirs. All you got to do is stick with me through the night. You know, you make yeah. it through the night; it's all yours. 
So it's going to be one hell of a night. <laughs> Apparently, geez. I, I was under the impression maybe originally the film was supposed to be set over 48 hours, mm. which um, I know the uh, the uh, the filmmaker Mike Malloy had told me, he said that all good action films in his theory are set within a 48 hour time frame. Well, if they're Walter Hill films, yes. <laughs> right, right. Well, you got that, but pretty much you watch like a Dirty Harry movie. It's like two days, you know, Yeah. or it, it isn't like three months later, he's still chasing the same killer it's nothing like that um it, and it makes sense but um you know it, it seems a little far-fetched to think with all the costume changes that this is supposed to be just one night like one night in brooklyn or something <laughs> just imagine uh, how long that dog actually was in his passenger <laughs> seat <laughs> i wonder um how much was cut out of them speaking italian with the subtitles <laughs> yeah give it that authenticity but in new york though it's a big market you know brooklyn there they played to that market i'm sure right like that. <laughs> all right anything else for uh, i guess the plot we can get into fun facts here unless somebody has anything else they want to bring up no i think we got all the all the good points yeah all right hey everybody here's some fun facts so according to william forsyth steven seagal told forsyth you really need to work on your Brooklyn accent. <laughs> Forsyth, a Brooklyn native, replied, trust me, you do. <laughs> Anybody seen Richie? Huh? I'm going to keep coming back until somebody remembers <laughs> seeing Richie. Yeah, the Q&A that I was with for Forsyth that I was at, I know he mentioned something for Alfred Justice, but I can't remember what it was specifically. It was nothing glaring or... Like, oh, I fucking hate Steven Seagal. It was just more like, oh, it was a lot of fun on that picture, that type of a deal. But yeah, there's I've seen some stories and some rumors going around about being a little contentious with the uh, with the accent specifically. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty ridiculous. Here's a fun fact. This is the only Steven Seagal movie between 1988 and 1998 to not feature a single explosion. Mm. Wow, they're really uh, slacking at IMDb <laughs> trivia there. For interesting facts. That, that or must have been an uninteresting commentary. Yeah. That's where they get pretty much all the fun facts from. It's 58 of 60 people found that interesting. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. The movie is loosely based on the real-life story of Constable Gus Ferris, who killed an undercover DEA agent and was the subject of manhunts by the cops and the mob. In real life, the mob found Gus Ferris first. Hmm. Is that is that kind of like they claim that the Black Texas Ranger inspired the Lone Ranger, but <laughs> Bass Reeves? But even though there's no evidence at Pretty all, much. This, you know, this is the IMDb trivia, so it's yeah. Great, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. There's one on the bottom that is paragraphs long. It's like a book talking about <laughs> LaBelle. It's like the LaBelle story. Yeah, and, and it's fourth, and it's I'm not, I'm not even going to read it. It's just yeah, it's not worth it. I already went over all that stuff, so probably with more detail and accuracy than you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. I know that it's a, it's the same uh, screenwriter as Roadhouse, Arlen oh, really? Hill. Yeah, who uses the name yep. David Lee Henry to write those uh, screenplays? Because apparently, this I have a fun fact here. This script was completely rewritten by Seagal, who felt that Hill's screenplay didn't reflect the reality of Brooklyn or took full advantage of the animosity and, and broken friendship between Gino and Richie. 
didn't didn't have enough uh, vowels. The name's got a rhyme. Gino Felino. I would say that if indeed it was rewritten by Seagal, I don't think he did what he set out to do. (laughs) That that reminds me of the the story about uh, No Holds Barred supposedly being rewritten in a a single evening or a, a single night by Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. A single Coke sesh. (laughs) <laughs> well high on cocaine <laughs> here's another fun fact during the filming of the showdown between Gino and Richie Steven Seagal broke William Forsyth's front tooth when he shoved his face into a brick wall I don't know if I believe that yeah. they would have used a foam fake brick wall anyway I don't, I don't believe those stories like you know, remember the Expendables when that came out and they claimed that Steve Austin broke Stallone's back and he had to get emergency surgery <laughs> and they showed like the surgery and everything. And I said, Spallone, Seagal uh, or Steve Austin has done that move night after night, probably three, four hundred times. There's no way he's going to do it to Stallone on a movie set where rocks and bricks are padded at their, you know, their foam and he's going to break his back. He's going to take him down with say, and I watched the move and it's like, he took him down safely. Like he guarded him when he took him down. I think Stallone, who is rumored to be like addicted to various surgeries anyway, probably wanted, was going to get that back surgery and said, Hey, let's tie it in with the movie and make it look like Steve injured me. And it's really sell it to the audience. And it's baloney. It's like, I don't, I don't believe those stories. That's that was what I was thinking. Stallone probably did so many steroids. You know, he's got a brittle back and needed the surgery anyways. Yeah, so he, he just uh, scammed the insurance on the on the movie set. It's likely uh, HGH, I think, is another. I've, I've heard he's gotten, like, hip replacements several times just because he's bored, you know, just, <laughs> you know. There's rumors of, yeah, he got <laughs> penis enlargement surgery. <laughs> you know that's out there you know just rumors but you know suppose he's probably in the doctor's office every month you know he's in his 70s aging it's hard to take you know they got a new surgery to make you taller now he's probably gonna hey, get that he's gonna get that well it's weird that he would go for hip surgeries being a short guy because yeah you know that makes you shorter <laughs> well he uh he did a recent video where he he claimed he quit lifting weights and he's just doing like um the tension bands or whatever like that's his thing now i wonder how long he'll stick with that and then he'll go back to lifting weights just get old and retire like it doesn't hurt just go on go watch lawrence welk it's all right it's cool was it one of the uh, expendables movies where he tried to smuggle some steroids into australia or something and uh yeah yeah he took some hgh down there they caught him with with a human growth hormone or testosterone pills or something and then he was claiming that was going to be over the counter in a few years. If, I never uh, take this stuff. It's uh, yeah, clean, hundred percent clean. Now he, uh, he all natural. He, I honestly think he wants to be the spokesperson for when they make that stuff over the counter. I, I, I feel like he wants to advertise for it or invest in it or something. Yeah. I mean, he he looks, you know, like he's been using it for fifty years. Yeah, he's never quit. <laughs> He looks like kind of like a he's healthy looking, but he looks like a Frankenstein monster, you know? Yeah, because this stuff gives you a jaw and it kind of enlarges your bones, supposedly. So it, it makes him look kind of freakish if you especially if you compare it to how he looked in the 70s. If you watch like Nighthawks or 
um, the first two Rocky movies doesn't look like the same guy at all. I mean, he he looks like uh, the fighters who have the plastic surgery to uh, repair their scar tissue. Yes. Even though he's a fake fighter, like he's right. never been cut, but like, like he's had the surgery to make his, his, uh, like a skin graft over his, uh, his scar tissue, which is non existent. Yeah, I think he's just vain, you know. Yeah. Speaking of uh, hair dye, Oof, uh, hard to kill. That hair dye is, oh, it's got awful and hard to kill. And I thought it was a little better now for justice. He had um, he had hair implants. I think he was one of the first guys to get those in the late '80s when they had kind of perfected them. Because it's hard to kill the paint. Like the <laughs> is so glaring. It's like ease up on the, the Blu-ray does does not cover it up very well. Oh God, I bet. Well, another thing is, I was told that there was a guy in those early day, early movies. There was an assistant who was paid to stand behind Seagal and create a shadow on his head or scalp with a piece of cardboard. <laughs> so <laughs> this I have not revealed on a show before, but I was told there is a guy he was paid who would just have this card piece of cardboard would have it creating a shade over Seagal's head in every scene. And that would uh, make sense for, yeah. especially it isn't as bad enough for justice. You can, t- you can tell it's, you know, there's some work done there. Right, but it, like in hard to kill, a lot of it is because you can see like a glare from a light mm-hmm. on his head, where there's supposed to be hair because it's all dark and painted yeah. black. Yeah. Doing the Steve well, and above the law, his hair is thinning. His hair is very thin and above the law. And yep. I think mm-hmm. that he was probably given a talking to. It's like you can't look like that. You can't look normal. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me think of uh, in uh, in 1996 WWF. I don't know if you remember. They did the uh, billionaire Ted sketches. I remember those. And they were uh, so it was like a WWF was mad because Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage signed with WCW, uh, which was owned by Ted Turner. So they made a a series of sketches with a a fake Ted Turner called Billionaire Ted. And he was promoting a Jurassic Park match between the Huckster and the Nacho Man. And one of the sketches was the the two wrestlers were doing their final preparations to get ready for the match. And the Huckster's like in his uh, locker room doing squats and stuff. And he like gets stuck in the down position because his back goes out because he's old is the joke. And uh, and the Nacho Man to get ready is just like eating Slim Jims and having his valet spray painted in his bald spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the spray on stuff was a popular infomercial that everybody laughed at around that time. Mm-hmm. But what's funny is like Hogan and Macho Man were like in their early forties at the time. Yeah, and like now. WWF or WWE, like the vast majority of their roster is like late 30s, early to the late 40s. Like they got a lot of guys who are in their 40s or 50s wrestling every week. There's uh MMA fighters who I think fight well into their 40s. There's a few, yeah. Yeah. So it's not 40 is the new 30, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh it's just funny like how how hard they they railed against WCW using old guys, and now that's their mo. They'll bring Goldberg back for a, a world title oh match twice a year. More like Graybeard. <laughs> he looks like Mike from uh, Breaking Bad. 
<laughs> and he moves like him too. <laughs> it's, it's he never really moves sad. that great. Like De Niro really and the sad. Irishman. I mean, Goldberg was pretty old when he was uh, breaking out because he had done the whole thing with. Uh, he was in the NFL for a while. Like he didn't start wrestling until he was after you know over thirty years old. Yeah, he started kind of late. I remember that. And uh, so he had like a couple good years, and then uh, and then he he retired for like. 12 years and then he came back and uh now he won't go away <laughs> the saudis love him the, the saudis yeah, they, i'm sure they do saudi they do these shows and these stadium shows in saudi arabia and the, and the saudis are like 20 or 30 years behind so they're like we want the undertaker we want goldberg we want yokozuna and uh, <laughs> it's like yokozuna died in 2000 more Bret Hart. <laughs> Goldberg is my wife's favorite. She's from Ethiopia, and wrestling is pretty big there. She had watched it in over a dozen years, you know. Yeah. But man, when she was growing up, she liked Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, like two years ago, they did a, a Goldberg versus Undertaker match in Saudi Arabia, and Goldberg knocked himself out running into the ring post, and then he almost killed the Undertaker trying to do his uh, jackhammer <laughs> finishing move. He couldn't get him up, so he just dropped him on his head. Oh, God. <laughs> so bad. And I thought the William Regal shoot was a disaster. Jeez. <laughs> I don't think there's any more fun facts to really go over. So, actually, there is one thing here. It says Steven Seagal was difficult to work with during filming. At... <laughs> and this must be true because it's in the trivia. Because it says at one point he was driven to tears on set when a light went out. <laughs> went out of this trailer i can't even get it out it's so ridiculous he attempted to blame the mishap on a teamster and have him fired but was unsuccessful we get the lights on in here what did john Claude van damme write that (laughs) (laughs) it probably did i'm familiar with the teamsters yeah, I knew Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> He's in the neighborhood. <laughs> Gene Lobel put him on the uh, put himself on the list of stunt uh, players as uncredited, and then wrote that uh, <laughs> trivia on there. <laughs> so I'm crying that I made him crab his pants. <laughs> uh, oh man, uh, I've had a blast this episode. Thank you so much for coming on, John. No problem. Um, let's let's get to your plugs here. Midnight Movie Cowboys, uh, which is at midnightmoviecowboys.com. You can also find our YouTube channel and watch the video version. I guess is the only way to appreciate the uh, whip out your junk segment we started <laughs> earlier this year. Yeah, we, we're putting out regular shows, uh, not slowing down. We've been pretty good about getting them out every every 10 days or so. And uh, we cover a wide variety of subjects, old Kung Fu flicks, uh, old Westerns, uh, some new movies we actually reviewed the batman against our better judgment um, <laughs> but we knew we could get a pretty hateful two hours out of it uh we cover western paperbacks on one episode we cover every sort of topic you could think of we'll we'll cover um gay serial killings in san francisco in the 70s irons uh it, we covered irons we were actually the first podcast to do a true crime episode on Eron's. And that was, that was almost 10 years ago, I think. 
it was a, it was a while back. So we did, uh, we did that. We will do, we'll cover all sorts of odd subjects. We'll try experimental shows where each of us will review a movie the other two have not seen. It's like we've uh, we've tried all sorts of gimmicks, so uh, a lot of experimentation. There's like, gosh, we've been around for um, about twelve years now, I think, mm-hmm. thirteen years. Or it's a long time. And I joined about nine years ago, maybe ten years ago. So there's a there's a lot. We got a huge archive. I mean, all of you guys are so knowledgeable, and you also have amazing guests on regularly. Zeldiver, for one, uh, such an expert in uh, Western films. Oh yeah. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, I pronounced his name, uh, name wrong that you uh, were on with uh, recently. What, it was just you and him uh, for Italian name, right? Oh, no, we had Chris Poggioli on, but um, we had Hunter on that episode. Oh, too. okay. Yeah, that was, a, that was the big tribute to Jimmy Wang Yu that we did after yep. uh, Wang Yu passed away. And we kind of wanted to put things back in perspective and get rid of a lot of the dumb American fan opinion on him, which is completely misinformed and, and wrong. Mm-hmm you know because everybody everybody in america is still stuck on bruce lee worship they've never moved beyond yeah. that we've discussed bruce lee and his cocaine <laughs> many <We've>, times <laughs> yeah, many times it's a recurring thing we discuss rob zombie a lot even though we don't want to but <laughs> it comes up it's a running gag Stu does he just doesn't want to admit it we uh we have a type of show that if you're not watching the video version you might think that we have fake characters on the show <laughs> but I assure you they're all real. They're mm-hmm. all legit. Their stories are true. Uh, Zolly Becker is a real human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can confirm that. And uh, we were lucky not... enough to have him on for one episode. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. He talked about the Batman on our show. <laughs> yeah. We, I, uh, we are the first podcast to really bring Zolly to legit mm-hmm. showcase before that. You're, you're the reason I, I knew about him years ago. Exactly. I was like, wait a second. He was talking to uh, star Wars with Hunter and I'm like, they mentioned Minnesota, Minneapolis. I'm like, why? What? He's from around here. Mm-hmm. I gotta get in touch with this dude. Yeah, Zali is somebody that I was reading his crazy stuff on Facebook, and I said, I bet he would be a really good guest on a podcast. <laughs> and he's become a regular. He's a he's a, a very much beloved uh, character, filmmaker, Renaissance man, Garrow Negosian. Garrow, Garrow is an old friend. I brought him into podcasting and. He's uh he shocks uh, everybody, and, uh, <laughs> goes after Stu about being an Australian. Um, uh, we're gonna have uh, we've been we've been doing a segment with uh, Anthony Nesbitt, the Nez, mm-hmm. UK correspondent. Right, uh, most Americans can't understand that segment at all. Um, <laughs> I am pleased to announce by the time this is released, we will probably have the latest episode out, which is uh, Stu is in Australia. I am, of course, here in America, and Anthony Nesbitt is the third miker, and he's in England. I swear to you, we're all speaking the same language, English. It may not seem like it at the time, but I assure you, we're all speaking the same language. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, I probably won't post this until later next week, or mid, at least midway through. Uh, today's, well, it, it's Saturday now, <laughs> wee hours of the morning, Saturday, uh, right. May 28th, but... Um, Maybe around Wednesday or so. Okay. But yeah, uh, love your show. It's my favorite show on the internets. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Oh yeah, glad to be on. It's, uh, this is uh, this is fun. And I've uh, been listening to you guys for quite a few years since you started following me on Twitter and uh, <laughs> said you were fans. I said, okay, I think, I think they're, they're telling the truth. They're, 
Yeah, they're from the Midwest. They're telling the truth. They're not from the <laughs> you were East Coast, West Coast. I wouldn't believe you. You're from the old neighborhood. I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> yeah, from the Midwest <laughs> neighborhood. All right. Well, uh, Brett, why don't you uh, tell people where they can look at some merchandise and not buy it? <laughs> yeah, if, if you feel so compelled, you can go to wtmwatchthismovie.creator-spring.com. It's the easiest URL to remember. Just type it into your browser because Eric will not put the link in the show notes. He just doesn't like to do that. But uh, yeah, it's on our Twitters. We have supposed to be following us on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I should probably get better at doing that stuff. And uh, if you want to see some of our actual merch in real life, uh, Stu wore it on one episode (laughs) of the Midnight Movie Cowboys. I can't remember which episode (laughs) it was, but he, he did wear it. Was it the Batman episode? It might have been the Batman episode. I think it was. I'm starting to think it was. So it is real. We do have merchandise. It does exist, Mm -hmm. and you can purchase some for yourself. You know, it's not even really important to me that you purchase or even look at the merch site. It's important to me that you rate and review on any (laughs) podcast app that you listen on. That's, That's all that really matters. The subscriptions, the likes, the five star reviews. You know, if you don't like us, well, you can give us whatever. But um, yeah, a rate and review, that would be much appreciated. You can email us at watchthismovie at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter at watchthis underscore movie or Brett at positivelywolf1. You can follow us both on Letterboxd, which John Grace is also on Letterboxd. See? Is it under just John Grace? I forget. Real John Grace. I Real John Grace. Okay, just like your uh, Twitter? Yeah. Okay. So you've got my cat Fez, I think is the symbol, I believe. Yep. And uh, yeah, you can uh, you can check out our website at WTMWatchThisMovie.com. Other than that, we will check you later. All right. Peace out, guys. Guess we'll see you around. All right. Check you later. Bye. Wait, man, why are you always such a dork, man? What are you talking check about? You later. Check you later. <laughs> hey, man, you're off my case. How you doing, Patty? I can still get it wet. How about you, Gina? Me? I can't believe you could still eat with that mouth. <laughs>